I think watch out for the jellyfish is the bigger, like, there's a lot of stuff in the ocean that wants to kill me. The jellyfish will not kill you, I promise. They might, they might hurt this thing a little, but <laughs> it won't kill you. Getting stung by a jellyfish is part of the experience. I don't want to mention that part. But it's, <laughs> it is part God. of the experience. You're really not selling it, John. It's not that bad. All right. So at the top of the show, I think we should take a serious moment to thank everyone for contributing to uh, Stephen Hackett and his family's fundraising effort for uh, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. They were, where were they at? Like $16,000, or something like that when we recorded. They were less than $20,000 when they recorded. I genuinely am overjoyed to say that as we record tonight, they are at $42,399. Whoa, that's awesome. Which is amazing. I think we can hit 50, and I'm not going to be so <laughs> bold as to say 60, but I think we can get to 50, just saying. So if you've listened to this, if, you've li- if, if, you've, if you're listening to this and have already donated, thank you. If you haven't donated, thank you for thinking about it, and thank you for going, as I'm talking to you right now, to heroes.stjude.org slash Hackett, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, and throwing them at least $5. I said last episode that even $1 would help, which is true. But it turns out you need to do at least five for some reason. <laughs> so, so if you have at least $5, which you probably do, I mean, you're probably listening to this on a $1,000 iPhone. You probably have five bucks. Why don't you throw St. Jude Children's Research Hospital five bucks? It'll make you feel good. So thank you. Also, do it soon because this is a September fundraiser. And while I'm sure you can donate to St. Jude whenever you want to, it would be extra cool if this happened during the last few days here of September. Exactly. So genuinely, as much as I'm trying to snarkily encourage you to donate more money, really and truly thank you from the three of us for anyone who listened to the show and donated. Um, I don't know if it was a big push from Stephen, if it was us, if it was a combination of things, but no matter who or how or why, you know, Stephen has now doubled, Stephen and his family have doubled what their goal was, which makes me exceptionally, exceptionally happy. So thank you to everyone who donated. I really appreciate it. And now back to regularly scheduled programming. And let's start off with something else that's cool, except way less cool. I don't know which one of you guys found this, but Apple made a watch face making of video, which is only like, what, two minutes long, three minutes long? This is amazing. I am so glad one of you put this in the show notes because I would not have seen it otherwise. Oh, it's one minute long. Exactly. That's a little bit longer than I spent using that watch face. (laughs) (laughs) It was circulating on on Twitter. I'm not. It's kind of weird. Like, it's a minute. It's more like just uh, excerpts. It's more like an ad for like a longer video. If the longer video yeah, exists, yeah, I don't yeah. know where it is. This just shows clips of it. But the, the, here's the upshot. We uh, talked when the uh, Series 4 Apple Watch came out about uh, how Apple was showing off the power of the GPU. And I mentioned they do that in the, the heart rate monitoring thing where they have that particle effects with the heart or whatever. Um, and they have all these other effects that are like flames and like water and stuff like that. that are vapor watch faces. And I said, I didn't know if those were just video, but the, the heart one definitely isn't. Well, not only like I, what I meant was I didn't know if the the all encompassing watch faces were like, oh, it's just a movie that's playing like there's a there's, you know, a video file in there and it just plays the video. And I assumed that they had created that video like in a special effects application with the flame effect or whatever or some, you know, like that it was it was computer generated. But all it was doing was playing a computer generated like it wasn't procedurally generated on the fly. It was a pre-recorded thing. Uh, well, it turns out it is pre-recorded, but they didn't make it in like after effects or in you know some sort of special effects application they made it with like flames like actual flames for the (laughs) flame face how did they make the vapor one they made it with vapor how did they make the water one they made it with a big thing of water uh and it's the video shows you them doing it it's almost as if like you can imagine it being like a joke video where there's some special effect uh 
that someone sees in television or, or a video game or whatever uh, and and they show people making it for real when it would be so much easier just to make it on a computer uh but like in in the uh keynote you could see the effect of these things like hitting the curved corners of the watch and bouncing off and it's like wow they modeled the walls of the watch so the thing that's expanding outward like hits the edges of your watch and reacts to it right what they did was made a giant thing that's like two feet by two feet in the exact shape and proportions of the watch and put fire in it and put water in it and put flames in it. <laughs> and in the cases where like the bubbles touch like the little tick, what are those called, Marco? The little, we, we think we didn't have a name for those, the tick marks that go around. The, They're called indices. The indices, right? So the, the effects hit the indices, like the little bubbles hit the indices. They made big plastic sticks in exactly the places where the indices <laughs> are in the graphic and put water in it and filmed it uh and so this looks like such a fun project like if you get to work on something as part of a marketing push getting to do this looks so fun it's like a combination of marketing and special effects and to see it all boiled down to these tiny tiny little videos that end up on your wrist i thought this was very cool and very fun and i wish it was more than a minute long and i would love to hear people talk about how they decided to do this like coming up like we need some cool new watch faces what can we do and someone's like i know we'll build a giant scale model of a watch and set it on fire good sold <laughs> all right friend of the show uh, steve Trout smith uh noticed something in the last day or two which was actually uh in turn noticed by miguel de casa i hope i pronounced that right i'm so sorry uh this is actually a throwback to our interview with chris latner a while ago and it's about bitcode john would you like to take over and kind of explain this not a throwback to our interview. We did talk about Bitcoin when we had uh, Chris Latner on the program. Um, but So here, here's the context. We mentioned on the last show, uh, I think, or maybe show before anyway, that, uh, that the Watch Series 4 uses uh, a 64-bit CPU, but the actual sort of what you compile down to is called ARM 6432, where it's, it's for a 64-bit uh, CPU, but it uses 32-bit pointers, which is a little bit weird, and that was what we were... Uh, remarking on because a bunch of other people had noted it as well which you forgotten at that point although we'd mentioned in many shows in the past and as any watch developer knows if you develop for watch os you don't send apple binaries you send them bitcode uh, and if you're wondering what bitcode is you can reference the link we'll have in the show notes to our interview with chris latner where he talks about it and that show has links to all the web pages on bitcode or whatever but uh the bottom line is it's a not a completely machine agnostic format, but it is a less machine specific format for encoding, you know, compiling something down to not an executable that can run on a machine, but to an intermediary form, which can then be turned into machine code and executed. And they, you know, you can do this for uh, iOS too. Is, uh, is that correct, Marco? You can submit BitGoat to Apple for your iOS apps? Yeah, with iOS, it's optional. And I believe with watchOS, it's mandatory. Yeah, so but you can do it for iOS, but you have to do it for watchOS. Um, and we talked about the advantages. Why would why would you want to do this? Why would you not give Apple a binary? And the advantages that Apple can basically build your binary on the fly for the people who want the thing by excluding instructions that aren't relevant to the device that's being loaded on and making your application smaller. And uh, Chris mentioned on the show when we talked to him that you could, uh, you know, fin- you know, when you change it into machine code, you know exactly which instructions exist in the hardware that you're targeting. So, uh, in the in the bit code, it could say that you just need to divide two numbers, but you don't know if there's a divide instruction for numbers of that size. Maybe one uh, platform has it, one platform doesn't, or whatever. Anyway, uh, Steve Trout and Spit, uh, Smith was uh, discussing on Twitter uh, that the fact that the watch has always required bit code means that watch applications that were submitted well before any ARM64 you know watches existed 
can run without being resubmitted and without being recompiled on the series four, which we didn't really talk about, but it's not like, you know, do people have to recompile their watch apps? The answer is no, they don't because every single watch app that has ever been submitted is bit code. And apparently Apple can take that and target the 64 bit architecture without asking developers to do anything additional. Now, I don't know if it's, that's because they all, it also uses 32 bit pointers. I'm not sure, you know, we need to have Chris back in the program, explain, you know, how, how they pulled this off. And if the architecture was significantly more significantly different, like different ND in this, or like it was x86 or something, could they have not done this, but because it's still arm. And the only difference is that, you know, it has 64 bit ints or whatever, uh, that they can pull this off. Anyway, point is they did pull it off. And I think this is a very, uh, you know, we always wonder how long Apple's roadmaps are, but, uh, it's kind of hints at the idea that when they came out with the first watch and were trying to decide, uh, what the rules would be about submitting watch applications, someone said, let's make everybody submitted in bit code. And the, the answer to why was because like in five years, we'll probably have a 64 bit <laughs> CPU in the watch. And it would be nice if we didn't have to ask people to recompile, like they, we asked them to do for the phone and the iPad and stuff like that. And so they did it, the, the magic of bit code, uh, went basically unnoticed like i didn't see a lot of stories about boy the new watch is great and by the way isn't it great that developers don't have to recompile their apps like they did when the phone went 64 bit no one said that where is that story but i think that's actually the lack of a story is the story that it's not a thing we had to talk about that it just worked uh yay for apple and yay for cool compiler technology Moving on, David Hanemeyer Hansen, is that right? Uh, DHH has noted that the iPhone tennis is faster than an iMac Pro on the speedometer 2.0 JavaScript benchmark. It's the fastest device I've ever tested. It's an insane 45% jump over the iPhone 8 or iPhone 10 chip. How? So this is uh, better than your computer, Marco. Maybe you don't even need a Mac Pro. You just need a uh, an iPhone. I mean, the screen's a little small. <laughs> yeah, we're, we get so excited about uh, saying how my phone is faster than my computer. Marco's phone is faster than his computer in at least one thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, now, granted, benchmarks are weird. Sometimes benchmarks exercise a particular thing that one particular CPU can do really well or that a benchmark fits entirely within a cache of one thing but not on the other. But, but this is not like the phone against an okay computer. This is a phone against like Apple's fastest computer with the Xeon edit that surely has more of everything, you know, uh, it can address more memory. It's at a higher clock speed. It has more cash at every possible level, has more, you know, instructions in flight, more execution units. Everything is wider in it. And yet for whatever reason, assuming this is valid and DHH, by the way, is the creator of Ruby on rails. And what else did he make? Uh, the old base camp, 37 signals, 37 signals is now called base camp. Anyway, I'm assuming this is a legit thing, and I'm assuming speedometer 2.0 is not a ridiculous benchmark, at least. Uh, and obviously, this is not a CPU benchmark. It's an application benchmark, and mobile Safari is not exactly the same executable as desktop Safari, yada, yada, yada. But the fact that it's even in the same ballpark that we're discussing, phone versus 3 gigahertz Xeon on anything, on, the, on literally any task, is really ridiculous. So I'm, I, was, I was impressed by that. So the next item of follow-up is listed in our internal show notes document as follows more about the iphone tennis to woo casey <sighs> which one of you jerks put this in here i did you've been you've been hanging out in all the various slack channels with us and people talking mm -hmm. about how great the iphone 10 s camera is and you're like don't mm -hmm. tell me about this i don't want to have to buy uh, you know mm -hmm. i'll just you know, and i feel like 
you've got your real camera and it, your real camera is still better than this camera and it, you know you, mm-hmm. i feel like you're hold strong but then i heard the most recent episode of the talk show uh, <laughs> with john gruber and i know exactly what you're gonna talk about <laughs> they were specifically talking about how uh sometimes the image stabilization in iphones can fight <laughs> with you when you're using a gimbal to record video is this sounding familiar yet casey yes and in fact that is <laughs> right after that moment like within a minute or two sh- uh, of that moment is when i had to turn it off and i have and I'll, i will go back to it later but i did hear that right before i had to stop listening to the show and i probably would have stopped anyway because i was so so damn annoyed at that point and what they said just to finish this up was that Apparently, Apple told one of them that the iPhone XS does a better job of dealing with being on a gimbal. It's not that it has the ability for you to just turn off the stabilization in the camera, which would be nice, but that somehow it does a better job of dealing with being on a gimbal, which is such a narrow particular use case that we just so happened to talk about on the very last show, which is very relevant to Casey's (laughs) life. And I feel like the world is aligning to make Casey feel bad for not buying this phone. Not only was like not only is the XS apparently like better about this, but they also said that apparently the 10 was especially bad about it. <laughs> yeah, so Marco's so, advice to use like a, an old 7 or something is looking better and better. Yeah. And 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 by the way, we heard you just just a quick follow up on that topic. We heard from a bunch of people. We we had a brief discussion during the show about using an app like Filmic Pro or something like that and I I cut her from this show because Everything we were hearing was kind of all over the map about whether it actually worked or not. And what I think the truth appears to have settled on is that you can use apps like Filmic Pro to disable stabilization, but it only disables like a software part of it, and it can't disable the hardware part that's like you know suspending the camera in like magnets and stuff like there's there's some part of it that can't be disabled in software so you can partially disable it but not fully and apparently some people have tried just putting like a magnet behind the phone and that apparently like kind of locks it in place yeah like sticking a powerful magnet right next to your camera which seems like i maybe don't want to do that like yeah uh, it doesn't sound like a great idea but i'll just throw it out there that people have said that worked Mm -hmm. uh but not a lot of people (laughs) but uh yeah so so all this is to say it's really funny that like you literally the phone you have is apparently the worst possible phone for for video stabilization finding finding a gimbal and that mm-hmm. you you could upgrade to this better one that we will talk about in a little bit uh that among the many problems it would solve for you this this is one you know it's it occurs to me when i was listening back to the last episode that when i think about casey doing his videos i don't often think of the fact that he's shooting all of it on an iphone i mean obviously he is like it's like i don't think he bought like a separate camera for it, but in my mind i don't see like an iphone sitting on a tripod and yet that's that's obviously what it is. So it never I'd never really thought about how suitable the particular phone you're using to record this is. I mean, maybe maybe it's because most of the time I, I think of that, like I think of Stephen Hackett with his crazy setup and he's got like Marco's old camera and this big, you know, like a it's also not a movie camera. It's still still an image camera, but it's definitely like a big rig setup. But, but Casey's just got like this little flat slab point and his gopros which we also see on camera we never see the iphone on camera and yet there it is recording all the video for him yeah and i've gotten asked in the past you know why not use my olympus micro four-thirds camera and the answer is it doesn't do 4k and 
uh, the only camera that I regularly use of the trio that I use that does not do 4K is my old GoPro, which is a GoPro Hero 3 Plus, I believe. I don't have it in front of me. Um, but the other, the, the GoPro Hero 6 and the iPhone both do 4K. So the videos are released in 4K and it just, you know, I guess, upscales, upsamples, whatever the term is, the, uh, the, the brief windows of time when I use the old GoPro. Um, but I've been looking for an excuse to upgrade to a newer version of my OMD M10. And so maybe using it for video will be my excuse and, and, or I'll, I'll cave on the phone issue because, uh, as of now, I have not bought myself any new treats. I am still on the iPhone 10. I'm still on the series three. Everyone's gotten treats, but me, you guys, everyone else has their treats, not me. So Marco, tell me about all your treats, including the watch that you seem to be wearing more than I expected. Yeah. By the way, honestly, don't upgrade your camera. Get the iPhone instead, because it is like I've said this before that like the iPhone is the best video camera in the world in most people's hands for most reasons. There's there's always exceptions. You know, pros have good reason to get different cameras to get pro cameras. But most people operating a camera to film most things most of the time, the iPhone is the best video camera in the world. It is so much easier to use in so many ways than other cameras, and it is so the results you get are so good in so many ways that you should probably stick with that. And the, that money would be better spent getting a better iPhone for shooting video than as long as you as long as it can work with the gimbal somehow uh, than any anything else. Honestly, we are sponsored this week by Marine Layer. For fifteen percent off your first order, visit MarineLayer.com and enter code ATP at checkout. Marine Layer makes clothes that make it easy to get dressed in the morning. This is stuff that is like always the top of your clothing rotation. It's basically the first shirt you grab from your stack. And you pick that up and you put it on. You're like, wow, okay, I look good. This is me. This is my look. And they specialize in really, really soft fabric. And this is like super soft. It's not just like, oh, that feels nice, soft. This is like, whoa, how did they make this? I can't even believe this exists. I'm never taking it off kind of soft. Because the softest t-shirts, turns out, come from trees. Micromodal, which is found in Marine Layer's signature fabric, is made from recycled beechwood, and the pulp production is actually self-sufficient, so their t-shirts are actually sustainable, eco-friendly, and, of course, super, super soft. In fact, our uh, saleswoman here, Jessie, uh, tried them out. She has a lot of experience with them, actually, and as soft as the clothes are, and they are truly, truly soft, she says they also keep their shape well, the t-shirts never look wrinkly or unkempt, and they always look flattering on both men and women. And they hold up great in the washer. She said, usually, you know, you might, you might expect super soft clothes. They might pill up pretty soon after being washed. But she said these come out looking as great as the day that she bought them. And if any of this doesn't pan out for you or it just doesn't fit you, whatever else, the return policy is insanely good. You can return pretty much anything for up to a year. They really stand by their clothes. They have free shipping and free returns on all U.S. orders. So check it out today at marinelayer.com. Just like just like it sounds, marinelayer.com. Enter code ATP at checkout to get 15% off your first order. Thank you so much to Marine Layer for sponsoring our show. Yep. So tell me about your uh, new treats, Marco. Well, for, did John get it yet? Yeah, I got it on Friday. Right. So, so I mean, my, my thoughts on the 10s are boring. Let's start with the phone and we'll go to the watch next. So start with the phone. John, I want to hear what you think of it. Because you, you didn't have the 10. So you're coming right from your Jet Black 7, which is somehow scratch-free, to this, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is uh, it's my first. I'm, this is like a year old stuff because everyone else got used to the 10 last year. But I didn't. I 
still been using my seven and I, I was happy using it for another year because i've just i felt like it was the peak of that form like it felt really good i mean i suppose the eight would have been better but it felt, felt really good to me no i agree especially with jet black and using it well you didn't use it without a case but jet black no case iphone 7 i think was the peak of that form well we can start we can start with the case um so i had a leather case on that one and i liked it it was great um i got a leather case for my 10s uh, and you know, the first thing you do is, well, first thing I do, I always put it in the case after I get the SIM card into it and everything. Um, and the leather case for the 10 S is like harder and slipperier than the seven. Now, granted it's leather. So I'm like, well, maybe it's, maybe this is exactly what the seven case was like when it was new. Maybe it will break in. It definitely looks like it's more textured or whatever, but anyway, I'm, I'm hoping it does break in. It's not like I'm oiling it like a like a like a baseball mitt. But no, it totally like all their leather cases. Even the one you got for your seven most likely did this. When when they're brand new, mm-hmm. they're fairly slippery and they're fairly firm. And within about a month or so, they really get nice and they get kind of tacky and they soften up and everything. Yeah, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping happens. That's, I'm sticking with it. It was two years ago. I didn't remember what the heck the seven case was like when it was new, but that, that, that's one of the first things I noticed. Um, and so now this is my phone. Um, I did add my face to my wife's 10 as soon as iOS 12 came out. So I've been unlocking hers with Face ID when I needed to. Now I've got my own phone. So I'm dealing with all the things that everyone else has already dealt with. Face ID, this, the gestures, all that other stuff. Face ID, I find mostly delightful because I still get that weird nerd tingle thinking about what it's doing and I'm being amazed that, that it works and how fast it does it. It, it. it happens faster than my brain can consider how amazing it is and and i don't consciously do this just unconsciously i think about how amazing it is and it, it makes me smile obviously this is a nerd thing most people don't care about this stuff or whatever but definitely gives me the nerd tingles when i unlock the thing and it, i love how how they've managed the uh sort of the interface sort of that it doesn't really matter what order things happen i just pick up the phone and swipe from the bottom and sometimes it's already unlocked and sometimes it unlocks later and it doesn't matter there's not some sort of order of operations it's just like uh, we'll do the things and if all the things assemble and the, if the, if the you know big anded conditional is satisfied at any point i don't care what order things happen and it's just your phone will unlock um, so i'm finding that really nice and i'm finding it very fast being sideways it doesn't work i don't still don't quite understand why it doesn't work sideways but i hopefully, hopefully they'll work on that um i'm amazed that it works when i like I'm holding like a piece of laundry under my chin or in my mouth to help fold it or something or like (laughs) like parts of my face are obscured or one eye is closed with glasses without glasses with with, you know weird things on my head it's just it's pretty phenomenal um so that's mostly a non-issue surprisingly my biggest stumbling block so far is the lack of a home button and i didn't think that would be the case Hmm. i just you know i think it is a thing i would get used to really quickly and it's no big deal and it's not because the gesture is bad or anything. It's a perfectly good gesture. Um, it's not slow, right? But I've breaking my habit of pressing somewhere on my phone to either go home or to wake it up is finding it hard to get out of that habit. I also find it somehow more difficult to, you know, it's a slightly bigger phone, but I find it somehow more difficult to get my thumb down there to the to the very, very bottom to do a swipe up gesture than I did to pinch the bottom center of my iPhone 7. I want to press things so much that I find myself occasionally hitting the side power button to try to go home. Like, I'll be using my phone and I'll be like, <laughs> I want to go home and I want to press something to go home. 
and I press the side power, which of course doesn't take you home, right? You know, it just turns the thing off or whatever. Like it's not, it's not doing what I want. You know, every once in a while that happens. So it's still early. It's still only been a week. Hopefully I'll get used to it. But I, my programming to touch the home button is apparently very strong and I really want to press something. And it's easier to, to, to not press something. It's easier just to swipe for the most part. Other than the reachability, it's like easier in terms of like having to, you know, I'd mentioned before about forced touch is a more difficult gesture to do. It's just that I, my hand is so trained to do that that I'm having trouble getting out of it. And very often there's like this brief microsecond pause as my brain figures out, okay, you, same thing with multitasking. Okay, you want to go home or you want to bring up the multitasking switcher, or you don't want to bring up the multitasking switcher, you should just use a stupid side-to-side swipe, which I keep forgetting exists, right? Because it's not, you know, so I have to break those habits, and they're taking longer than I wanted. And Face ID, I, I think, is great. Um, and the final thing is, apparently, when I hold my phone in my left hand, it didn't occur to me this would be an issue until I got this thing, but my left pointer finger ends up in the spot where the lower camera is and this has never been an issue before because we never had a camera i never had a camera that you know extended down mine's were all just a circle in the corner so i didn't have anything there and even like on the plus phones it goes sideways instead of vertically so i find my finger kind of hanging when i hold it in my left hand which happens hanging around uh, uh, hanging out by the bottom camera like by that little ridge and like touching the camera lens and i don't want to touch the camera lens i don't get my camera lens all mucky right and so it's like, but I but I want to put my finger there. And so like I shimmy the phone a little bit. Uh, I would like it if that camera lens would get out from under my finger and maybe be horizontal instead of vertical. I think it looks cool vertical, but it's but it's under my finger, which is uh, a little bit weird. You don't you don't put that that finger near the sleep wake button? Uh, apparently not. Like I I don't really hold my phone in my left hand that often. Like I'm a right I hold my phone in my right hand, but every once in a while I have occasion to hold it in my left hand, and when I do. That's apparently where my finger goes, and I've I've noticed it. Well, as a left-hand phone-holding pro, because that's my primary way of holding my phone, I can tell you you're holding it wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, um, the setup setup process was uh, mostly uneventful. This isn't really 10s specific, although I check in on it. Like this, this is the year I kind of sort of started to believe Marco saying, "I'll just use the iCloud thing with iCloud keychain. You restore everything. We'll be fine." Uh, I did that. And when I realized I would have to reset up all my slacks, I said, forget it and restore from iTunes backup, which took forever and took two tries as usual. <laughs> the first time it took like an hour and a half. And right at the end, it's like an error occurred. Sorry, couldn't do a oh, thing. And then my phone rebooted gosh. and it was like half installed. So then I had to take another hour and a half and it finally completed. Uh, but there's no way I was going to recreate all my slacks. Even when I did the iTunes restore, my Google Authenticator app was missing stuff in it, and I had to figure out how to re-add things to Google Authenticator, which is never easy to do. Every one of those servers has some totally Byzantine way to do that. Uh, I wish you could transfer them from one phone to the other, like I kept my 7 around, but anyway. Uh, it transferred, the, the thing that I really loved is I was dreading this, but it didn't occur to me that I wouldn't have to rearrange all my home screens for once, because it's the same number of icons vertically and horizontally <laughs> on the home screens. Mm-hmm. So I don't didn't have to do anything. I was like, oh, thank God. And iOS 12 didn't screw up my icons too much, but that was already on the other phone. Um, All right, two things before you continue. Number one, if you do iCloud Keychain, then you get what you, what used to require the iTunes Restore, the, the iTunes Encrypted Restore, rather, where all your passwords are saved with it. 
There is, though, you know, as you mentioned, there are some apps like Slack that store their authentication keys or login info in, in a way that is not backed up. And there's a few different ways you can do that with the SDK. Uh, they probably don't need to be doing it like this. They probably should be using the keychain, but they're not. Uh, or at least they're not using it for something, something else critical. But Slack also has a pretty nice feature these days that you can just enter an email address and it lets you like then one button add any Slack where that email address has a login. I noticed that today when I was adding a Slack to my iPad and it said, do you want to add your Slack by email address or sign in? And I was like, what the hell does by email address mean? I said, let me just sign in. And I did because I was just adding one Slack. If I had known that feature existed, maybe I would have tried it. But at the time I was doing it, I also believed that the iCloud restore was the reason my Google Authenticator crap was missing. Apparently that wasn't because like I said, I did the <laughs> iTunes restore and the exact same things were missing. But but adding Slacks, like I, I would rather wait for another hour and a half iTunes restore than to add Slack. Language. I'm, gl- <laughs> I'm glad there's a more efficient way to do it. Maybe next time I'll try one more time to do the laborious iCloud restore because I do use iCloud keychain. Use the iCloud restore, do the Slack thing to get all my Slacks back uh, and then deal with my authenticator stuff manually, which apparently I'm forced to do. Yeah, I'll also say I had pretty good luck this year with the whole like hold your new phone next to your old phone thing and it like arranges it for you with a little pop-up thing like when you can when you connect to AirPods. Yeah, I did that. It was actually really nice. Like it worked perfectly for me. Yeah, if you're doing iCloud restore, that totally works. Like that it, it's fun and it works and you don't have to worry about. It. I even did the watch transfer thing during that setup process with my ancient watch. Mm-hmm. And it worked fine. And it's way faster than an iTunes restore and it's way faster than iCloud restores used to be. Yeah, and then I just turned off my watch and put it away again. But <laughs> you know, I, I transferred, transferred it to the new phone. Uh, I think it rebooted during some point. And I got to see the, you know, again, 20-minute boot process of the Series 0 phone <laughs> running watchOS 4. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm liking it so far. Uh, I haven't actually taken a lot of pictures. I was actually inspired today uh, by Tiff's picture of chestnuts. I'm like, oh, I saw some cool chestnuts on on uh, outside work, and so I took a picture of chestnuts with my new. I think it's the first <laughs> picture I've taken with my new camera because they look cool, cool and shiny, like they're all broken up on the ground. Like, yeah. You know, in her picture, she was holding them in her hand. Um, so I figured that's a good uh, picture to take. But I haven't I haven't really done anything exciting with it so far. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think that's about it. Oh, I forgot one more thing: OLED screen on a phone. I'm sure everyone who has OLED screens on their phone already knows about this. I already knew about it, but I guess it didn't really occur to me how much it would bother me. And also, now I want to look into this further and figure out what the exact cause is so I can be properly annoyed by it. The, <laughs> what, whatever it's called, like the the Jello type thing, like if you just go to messages and scroll up and down, it looks like the bubbles are like wobbling and getting closer to each other and farther away. Have you all seen this effect? Well, they are, but they're not. I know I know what you mean, but no, that, that actually is a UI kit dynamics effect also. <laughs> right, but no, but say I thought maybe that's just an effect and I'm going crazy. So I pulled up my iPhone 7 and did the same thing and they don't do it there. It could maybe it's reduced motion. Maybe that's it. All right. I, before I go off of the deep end, let me let me let me turn on reduced motion. Which is another thing, by the way, I mentioned this before, but the, the, I don't I had a reduced motion on my seven. I didn't do it on the the 10s just because it bothers me less and i assume the transitions are the same let's see general accessibility well so if you want if you want to see an example of the effect you're talking about it it mostly doesn't show up on light backgrounds it very much shows up on when you have a very dark background and something scrolling so one area that i know that you can see this very well because it was reported to me as a bug is if you go to the overcast about screen in the black theme and you scroll up and down real fast, it looks like the logo is jittering in the middle of the screen. Hmm. So anytime, anytime you scroll up and down real fast on a, on a black background where something in the middle can, can move, it looks like it'll be jittering. 
Oh, whoa, whoa. All right. So the, the dynamic effect in the messages bubbles was a, was a reduced motion thing. Uh, but yeah, the effect you're talking about is still a real effect, and I do see it. Uh, the the bubble effect was extreme, and that is apparently a real effect. So oh God, Marco, was... why did you show me this? <laughs> Next, you're going to tell me about the FedEx logo. Uh... Yeah, and and I I don't know what causes this. I'm assuming it's like you know pixel transitions being different from light to dark and dark to light, or maybe it's about the, how the screen is refreshed. I'll look it up between now and the next show, so I'll, I'll figure it out. But that's one of those things that where OLED screens behave differently than LCD screens in a way that is visible during motion. I suppose I'll get over it, but here's the thing about, I was thinking about this when I was thinking about the, uh, the iPads that are coming in the fall. I would love it if the iPads were OLED because I watch a lot of video on my, like TV shows and stuff on my iPad. It's great that I have perfect blacks on my phone, but I don't, you know, I'm not watching television shows on my phone. Like I'm sure it makes the pictures pop and, you know, it's a great screen and everything. Uh, but especially again, after hearing the talk show and having, hearing, uh, Neely Patel and, and Gruber rave about how, how good the LCD screen on the 10R looks. If I, if someone said, uh, you can have the 10S, but with an LCD screen on it without these weird visual artifacts and it, it looks as just as good side by side when showing your photos as the 10, uh, you know, as the OLED screen, I might opt for that. Like I, I want OLED in, in a situation where, you know, I want to see video, but on a phone, I don't care quite as much about it i don't know maybe i'll get over it especially now that i know that the message bubble effects was because i didn't have reduced motion on maybe i'll leave reduced motion on now to get over that but the effect that marco has now showed us all and you should not look at it if you don't want to be disturbed <laughs> don't by do it. it that's that's the thing i was talking about it's a real thing and i can see it and it bothers me ever so slightly i wonder because it, it really is only a problem when you have a, a, a black background i wonder if maybe apple held back on the dark ios theme in part because of this problem yeah because it'll show, show up uh, everywhere yeah maybe. Oh, yeah, and i get i get yeah i always think i'm done with this one more thing it's always one more thing i learned that from steve um <laughs> so part of the home button thing me pressing on a thing to to uh to wake my phone up because it was also a touch id or whatever my expectation that i can pick up my phone and touch all over the screen without waking it as long as i don't touch the bottom center of it is throwing me off a little now immediately i turned off i turned off raise to wake i turned off raise to talk i turned off uh you know talk to raise to listen i turned off all the things that try to detect when i'm picking up my phone uh and the phone actually does do a good job of detecting like oh you just picked up your phone like i can pick up my phone now and grab it by the screen it doesn't wake up it knows like i've just grabbed you by the screen but if you just tap it it wakes up which is great like oh i love waking up my phone by touching the screen i can't go back to the thing where i had to but very often now i will inadvertently wake my phone because i will brush it and if i'm what i'm usually doing on my phone if i'm picking it up and not looking at it it's playing overcast and overcast has a little you know it shows up in the sort of what is that called the, the control the, center now or like the springboard now playing right. thing the widget yep and dead center in that is a little control that controls my position in the show and if i accidentally grab my phone and it wakes up and i slide my finger and i move that scrubber there's no undo as far as i aware and i just scrubbed you know 35 minutes into the podcast i was listening to so now my phone is a little tiny bit like the apple tv remote and it's like it's like a hot phone hot phone <laughs> you know, you to, nope you pick up the phone it's hot you know i don't like <laughs> just, i don't i don't want to wake my phone i want to be able to grab it and only when i want to wake it i'll press the home button on the but it's not there anymore so i'm i'm working through those issues I, again i appreciate the fact that it tries to be <laughs> we're smart, going to therapy like, we're working through it 
Yeah, it, it, I love the fact that it tries to be smart and like ignores my touches when they're clearly not meant to be a waking touch, but sometimes it's a little bit confused. So I'm still working through those issues. That's it. That's it. I've, I think I've covered everything. So do you or do you not like the phone? And do you miss, I like, do you miss this, the Jet, Jetbox 7? Well, so the, the 10 and the 10s perform the magic trick that they that all great Apple technology does, which is like within three and a half minutes of using using the 10s and taking possession of it as my phone when i went back to the 7 to check some settings because like it didn't transfer like my my screen wake time for some reason like a couple of my preferences I'm like this seems to be going to sleep anyway oh yeah the the 10 and 10s reset your the 10s didn't do it for me but the, when i moved to the 10 it reset the idle time out to be super short yeah i don't know what the deal with it anyway when i went back to the 7 because i'm keeping it on to like to look up settings and you know stuff like that the seven now looks like I'm looking through a tiny porthole onto <laughs> onto my phone. I'm like, what? Why is the screen so small? And what are these things on the top and the bottom blocking my view of the phone? Like, does, did someone put tape over my phone? It's not that much smaller. Like, the device isn't that much smaller. The screen's not that much smaller. But you can't. I can't go back. Like, it's now that is now an old phone. It's it's garbage. I can't look at it. I can't touch it anymore. <laughs> I do kind of miss Touch ID, but I look at it and it now it looks like. It looked like the original iPhone to me, like the 3.5 inch. <laughs> like, it's just like, what is this thing? I do kind of miss the size because I feel like this is a little bit big. Oh, I bought I bought a new pouch. You know my pouches. Yeah, I bought. Oh, I bought the. God, uh, you should have led with that. This is breaking news. <laughs> I bought the larger size pouch because <laughs> the pouches are like this pouch fits these phones, and I, I you know and I use that for those things. And then it's like, oh, if you want to fit a larger phone like the 10 or the or the you know buy this one. So I bought that one. But it's. I think it also fits the max, and it's just it's just big. It's just too too big. There's too much extra space in there. Like it, there's like a centimeter of extra bag. Once I slide the thing, it's too loose. So then I realized maybe I could just stick the ten in the bag that was holding my seven, and I can. Like the butt sticks out a little, but just barely. And mostly, I just want it to cover the screen, so I can like put things in my pocket with it and not worry about it scratching. That's basically why I have, especially since I don't know how scratch resistant resistant this actually is. Um, so I'm using the, the pouch for my seven with it, even though I have a new pouch. <laughs> oh my God. So I like it. I've, I've totally transitioned to it. I can't go back. I've got some issues. We're working through them. Uh, face ID is really neat. Uh, it's a little bit touchy. I'm so happy we asked. And people are actually asking for a link to the pouch. So John, I don't want to receive this email. <laughs> I have that link to, I have, I started a notes document like a year ago that just has URLs in it. Like it has the URL of your toaster thing, Casey, on your blog, because people ask about it all the time. And I was sick of <laughs> looking up the URL and copying a bit. So I just put URLs that people ask me for. The pouch URL is on there. We will put it in the show notes. Oh, my word. Well, I don't have that much to add about the XS, uh, ex- except for the fact that I really am very, very glad I did the upgrade because, my God, is the camera better. Like, I really think <sighs> they underplayed the camera. I, I said it before last week. I won't go too far into it, but wow, is the camera better. You know, if you just... It, you know, if you see in people's reviews, you see the side-by-side shots and you think, oh, maybe that's like ideal scenarios that really show the difference well... As soon as you use the camera for like a day, you're like, oh my, that was really easy to get a really good shot with very little effort. Uh, it like I it, in the little bit of time I've used it so far, it was really stunning how well it dealt with HDR, like how well it dealt with mixed lighting where maybe you have like a sunset or something or like a reflective surface or a bright surface or a bright light with like the way it manages HDR is so good. 
and it's it seems very sharp. You know, other shutter lag. I I, I expected more of an improvement with shutter lag. It, it actually isn't very much improved, uh, but but the the result of what you get out of it is really really good even portrait mode i'm a huge portrait mode skeptic I, I have never seen a portrait mode picture that i thought was really great and perfect but i came close like the one i it's on my instagram feed i shot a, a portrait of tiff uh, on the beach dock and it that's portrait mode and I, I had to tune it down a little bit from like the f1.4 that it wanted to be because that looked totally ridiculous and unreal but i put it in like the f5.6 or f4 range and it looks pretty good um and it didn't look obviously like oh that's portrait mode it just looked like a, like a nice picture so i was i'm very very happy with the camera on it additionally i shot some video with stereo sound and it's kind of nice like it's it doesn't it, the one thing i will say is that it doesn't sound the stereo effect i think is being amped up slightly but not to an extreme degree. It's it's like it's like they turned up the 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 you know boost slider a little bit on the stereo separation to make it slightly wider sounding than it naturally does when you're standing there. But it's very very slight. Otherwise, it really is nice to have stereo sound. Especially like like one of the examples I did was we were at the beach, so I shot standing at the beach looking at the waves, and the waves were crashing down like from left to right. And you could hear that. You could hear that right in the in the video. Like, and listening on headphones really sounds awesome, and it really sounds better than than just having mono audio before. So, overall, very very impressed by the camera. It is not a small upgrade. The rest of the phone is a small upgrade. The camera is a major upgrade. This is like an every three years kind of upgrade for the camera. Yeah, well, one of the things we forgot to mention about the camera that I th- maybe we talked about on the keynote show, but we didn't. Uh haven't really uh leaned on too much and has been coming up in blogs and also on that episode of the talk show um we mentioned that like if you take the camera into dim lighting it will lower the frame rate to gather more light in each frame like during the same video to just salvage what would otherwise be a completely dark video uh but it will also if you have it set to a lower frame rate it will double the frame rate and take a frame in between the frames that it's going to use and use that frame to add more detail and lighting to the frames that it did take so if you're shooting at 30 frames per second it'll actually record at 60 and take every other frame and just use it to make the two you know in between each frame it'll use another frame to make those frames better which is pretty amazing yeah it's doing it's doing exposure bracketing so it'll expose one low and one high and merge them together every for every frame of a video yeah because it's like i can do 60 why am i just gonna do 30 why don't i just do 60 and do one high one low one high one low one high one low and then i'll make you 30 good ones out of out of those things which is pretty (laughs) and you may be wondering like okay well then why doesn't it just leave the the quote-unquote shutter open for a longer time and get me 30 but expose each one longer right the longer you leave the shutter open the more you're going to get blur uh and so this technique is you know i only need to be open for a 60th of a second to get a decent exposure and if I do that and take two of those, one high, one low, they'll be less blurry, and then I can combine and match them and compensate for the motion between the... Like, it's all, it's computational photography, right? Um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, the, the same way people don't think about the fact that when they press the shutter button, it is basically telling it, you know that picture you captured several milliseconds ago? Save that one. Like, it's not taking a picture when you press the button. It's always taking a picture. It's got a, a rolling buffer of the last, you know, whatever it is, you know, 10 or 4 or however many frames. And when you press the shutter button, especially since you're like, when you press the shutter button, you probably move your phone, right? Like, you you shake it or whatever. It's like, oh, it's going to make the picture blurry. It's like, it already took the picture by then. You're just telling it to save the picture. It already <laughs> you know, phone cameras don't work the way you think they do, and they're fiendishly fast, and it's all... 
pretty amazing. Um, and as as for uh, uh, what do you call it, portrait mode? When you posted that picture of Tiff on your Instagram, I immediately zoomed in on her hair and said, "Aha, portrait mode." So it's good, but yeah, it's portrait mode. <laughs> no, it's not perfect, but like, but there are way fewer artifacts than there used to be on the earlier implementations of this feature especially like if you tone it down like i said like i didn't go with 1.4 like if you go with one of the really extreme ones the artifacts become more obvious where i didn't make the right decision Mm -hmm. Uh, but when you if you go with something like f4 f5.6 like that's it's a lot easier and nicer instagram sizes you don't see that but you know yeah yeah i did i did i had to zoom let's put it this way i had to zoom in on her wispy little hairs to see oh i see where it's mangling (laughs) the the blur right but but an instagram size not zoomed in you're like that could have been a real camera almost we are sponsored this week by Prime Video Channels. Start your free trials of over 100 channels by visiting tryprimechannels.com slash ATP. Prime Video Channels is one of the many benefits of Amazon Prime. So we've all had Amazon Prime forever. At least I hope you do. I, I recommend having Amazon Prime for lots of reasons. And in, in addition to what you normally would think of, things like the fast shipping with Amazon Prime, you also have great entertainment that can be delivered to you instantly through Prime Video Channels. And this is above and beyond the regular Prime Video service. With Prime Video Channels, you can create a TV lineup you love. You can choose from over 100 premium and specialty channels. This is not just like a bunch of no-name stuff. This is stuff like Showtime, Stars, HBO, CBS All Access. Lots of stuff is included here. Every channel on Prime Video Channels starts with a free trial. You start a seven-day free trial on anything you haven't tried yet, and it's totally risk-free. You can cancel whenever you want. You only pay for the channels you want. And you can watch this anytime, anywhere. They have over 650 connected devices that have the Prime Video app built in. So these are things like Fire TVs, Roku's, even the Apple TV, plus compatible smart TVs from pretty much every major smart TV brand. Of course, you can watch it on your tablet or on your phone, and you can watch it on the, on a, in a web browser on Amazon's site. There's lots of hot, hot content coming this fall, too. There's, like, Power on Stars. There's Shameless on Showtime. There's the latest seasons of Ballers and Insecure on an HBO. Of course, every season of Game of Thrones is on there available, too. So check it out today at tryprimechannels.com slash ATP. And you can see for yourself how great this is to only pay for what you want with no additional apps you have to download. You can cancel any time. No cable required pretty great for cord cutters or for pretty much anybody actually so check it out today tryprimechannels.com slash atp and you can start your free trial of over 100 channels on prime video channels thank you so much to prime video channels for sponsoring our show i really am trying to resist buying a phone but my 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 ability to resist is wearing thinner and thinner i've already told myself i will be getting a watch i just haven't done it so marco tell me about this watch that i keep seeing pop up in all these pictures of you mr i only like fancy mechanical watches what's going on there i'll start with the size thing because this is is, you know we, we talked about this before to wrap up i got the 40 i tried them both in store i got the 40 the smaller of the two for the most part, watch sizing is like, you know, you, you can wear what you want and, you know, as long as it's what you want, who cares? Some people like really big watches. Some people like really small watches. There's a lot of a lot of leeway. But ideally, you follow two principles. Number one, the lugs of the watch. Those are like the little like sticks that come out of it top and bottom that hold the strap on. So it's you know, the body of a watch is like the middle part that has like the main case with the dial and everything. And then the lugs kind of stick out from it to hold straps. Not on the Apple Watch, of course, but, you know. And so one fashion thing is the lugs should not overhang your wrist. 
you know, that's fine if you don't care. But if you're caring about like watch proper watch fashion, the lugs should never overhang your wrist. Part number two, to understand this, I want you to picture an icon of a watch. What does it look like? The watch cursor in macOS? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, the watch cursor in macOS, right? So you have a watch body in the middle and you have kind of like a short little strap on the top and a short little strap on the bottom. And it's kind of assumed in a 2D representation that the strap is like curving under the watch. But you see the two ends of the strap and the middle, the watch head, right? So it's a top-down view of how, how a watch is expected to look on a wrist. That is a watch-shaped watch. You know, John has a dog-shaped dog. I, have, I want a watch-shaped watch, all right? For a watch to look like that in real life, this is the second rule of watch sizing, which is often disregarded. The strap should not come straight down from the watch at a 90-degree angle. It should have some curvature on your wrist before it comes straight down. If you don't, if you, if the watch is so big that the strap basically falls straight down where it's like filling your wrist to that degree and the strap just kind of falls straight down, that's a pretty big look. And that might be what you're going for, but it's a big look. I don't like that look. I like the more classical watch shaped watch look. And so what I don't want is the biggest watch that will possibly fit on my wrist. The 44, when I tried it on, looked like that. It dominated my wrist with a giant screen. And so for many people, that's a feature. For me, that's a bug. I do not want that. I want a more classically proportioned watch. So for me, the 40 provided that. It it provides enough leeway in sizing that the strap has room to curve around my wrist instead of just falling straight down, which is important on the sport strap since it doesn't fall straight down no matter what. So if it's too big on you, it just kind of makes these big like air pockets on your wrist, which kind of look weird. Um, So anyway, 40 is great for me. And I got the steel one as as I planned on it, and it is really, really nice. What what I like about the final thing I'll say about the size, you know, besides the fact that it finally looks more classically proportioned on me, is that it gives me the same screen space and therefore, for the vast majority of the case, the same utility as the old big watch did in the smaller watch size case. So I have the same utility in the smaller case. And I finally understand why most people like the tiny crappy laptops in the lineup because (laughs) when you're not an extreme enthusiast of something having your needs completely solved by a new smaller thing than what you needed before (laughs) with no downsides that matter to you is incredibly satisfying so for me like i don't love the apple watch i kind of like it i like other watches better but i need to use the apple watch on a certain basis for my job it's exactly how a lot of people think about computers i am much happier with this one than i've ever been with any other apple watch and because of that i'm wearing it more you know it's still not my favorite watch it's still never going to be my primary watch but i am wearing it more than i've worn any other apple watch since the very first one since before i switched to regular watches and i'm very very happy with it it is a very very nice smartwatch. it's even a pretty decent regular watch not a great regular watch. I still there's still things about it that annoy me, uh, but pretty decent uh, for a regular watch and excellent for a smartwatch. Um, I do have some more specific reviews of things like the faces. Before I get into that, do you have any questions on what I just talked about? I should talk about uh, my my watch experience based on the sizing too, because we we went to the store 
to look at watches. My wife got the uh, the gold uh, small watch, uh, which is what she wanted. Uh, and I tried on all the different sizes of watches many different times, many different finishes, trying to, to think about just exactly what Marco was talking about. Is the 44 too big? Is the 40 too small? And do I want to buy a watch? And so I spent a while while she was getting, she got her watch set up there and they transferred it from her phone and all sorts of stuff. So I had plenty of time to mess with the things. And I understand everything Marco was saying, and I mostly agree with it. And I even took like pictures of my wrists and everything. And boy, it's, it's tough because here's the thing, like the 44, as my wife put it, it doesn't look too big on you. Like it doesn't, it doesn't look like it's too big. It doesn't look like this watch is definitely too big for you, but it's really close to, yeah. to like, it's not it, but you know, it's weird. Right. And so, but here's the problem. I'm like, okay, well, whatever. Let me try on the 40 or is that the size it is the 40, the small one? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. 40 just looks too small. <laughs> it just looks <laughs> too small. Like I know this is, this is just, you know, a cultural thing and like it's just my upbringing but when i wear it i feel like i'm wearing a woman's watch because for my life women's watches are all smaller and when i put this on like it it feels and looks too small to me and yet when i look at the pictures i took of my own wrist with these watches on them it looks right in the pictures in the picture i'm like that's exactly the right size watch it's it's like the watch icon like that is exactly the right (laughs) size for you but when i put it on in real life and i look at my wrist i feel like why are you wearing your mom's watch (laughs) it just feels too small and secondarily like i don't really care about fashion like right so i'm thinking about this mostly yeah mostly just from the perspective of like that's why i'm showing my wife i'm like look does one of these look ridiculous on me just tell me like whatever from my perspective i want the one with the bigger screen because it's all about the screen and why wouldn't i want the bigger screen right like i even though i recognize that it is probably borderline and it's like so close to the edge and i should really probably get the smaller one but then the smaller one it feels it's just, i just want the bigger screen because it's a bigger screen and the whole point is it's a screen right uh in the end this whole experience basically led me to the decision that i'm not going to get a, uh, a new watch just because the sizing i feel like if i bought either one of them i would regret it and seeing them in person i was like yeah i just i'm i I pulled a Casey. So I was I'm holding strong with you, Casey. I said, you know what? I'm just not going to get one. I thought I was going to get one. I thought it would be a great year to get one. They're really good. I like them. But the, the sizing thing and me saying, do you really need this? Are you going to wear? Are you really going to wear it that much more often than you are the other one? My answer is no. Uh, and so I'm not getting a watch. Well, slow down. I intend to get a watch. I just I mean, I mean, like comparing yet. you to the phone. Like there's yeah, reasons right. I might want to get the phone, but do I really, really need it? Like that's that's what I'm comparing it to. Yeah, and honestly, yeah. like like when I tried them on in the store, the the 40 was smaller than I expected it to be, uh, but the 44 was bigger than I expected it to be. And I I had the same dilemma in my head of like, is this too small for me? You know, might it look more traditionally feminine? Which, by the way, is hilarious because until like the 90s, men's watches were 35 millimeter. Like, that was the standard size for men's watches, which is way... Like, that's the size of my Minimatic that I, I talked about before, like, which I thought was... Is a little... Is pretty dainty on me. And and when I was buying that watch, I was real... Like, I saw it in the store. I'm like, oh my god, I love this, but I'm so afraid it's too small for me. And I really waffled about it for a while, and I ended up buying it because I loved it so much otherwise, and I didn't regret it at all. I love that watch. It's one of my favorite watches. And that's kind of how I felt looking at the Series 4 40 millimeter in the store. Like, I was really questioning myself. I was like, oh, boy, maybe I should cancel my 40 order and just get the 44 or whatever else. And, and I, But when I tried on the 44, I'm like, no, you know what? This is too big on me, period. 
And so it's either have one that's too big or have one that might be a little too small. But, you know, your perspective on the watch sizing is actually a lot like what you were just saying about the iPhone 7 feeling small. Like when you're accustomed to a certain size, you know, the transitions, bigger or smaller, look crazy for like an hour and then you get used to it. Like whatever it is, you get used to it, and you can get used to it going in the smaller direction too. It isn't just going bigger that you get used to things. Yeah, and I also realized you mentioned like the men's watches being like thirty-five millimeters. Like I wore when I did wear watches, they were all way smaller than the Apple Watch of any size, like the, yeah. the 40, 40, the other forty-four. But the thing is, I realized I'm judging the Apple Watch not based on the standard of it being a watch. I'm basing it on the standard of essentially it being an Apple Watch. Like I have this this image in my mind of how big a smartwatch should be. And that's why the small one seems so small, because I'm like, it's like a miniature Apple Watch that I'm wearing on my wrist. It's not like a regular. So maybe I would get over that. Anyway, I'm not getting one. But like, if they stick with these two sizes, I will still face this dilemma at some point in the future when my Series 0 like eventually dies. But for now, like because I took the Series 0 out to pair it to my phone and everything, I got to spend more time with the Series 0. I still like it as a thing that tells time and shows me my message bubbles. So I'm I'm just gonna keep rocking the series here. I can't use the overcast stuff, but like you know, I use my phone for that. I'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, I went to the store very quickly and very briefly and by myself, so I didn't have uh, uh, the voice of reason of Aaron with me to help. So why didn't you get one? Because uh, I don't believe they had the stock I wanted at that particular time. Um, <laughs> There's the real reason. <laughs> it wasn't self control. It was stock. <laughs> no, actually, no, it was self control. No, no, no. That, it was self control. That's right. Because I actually even brought my business credit card with me because this was going to be on the business and I did not leverage it uh, and I didn't even ask. That's what it was. But now, a week later, I would, it's, it's a stock issue. I haven't been looking at iStockNow.com every day. No, of course not. Anyway, I went and tried on both and I'll put a link to uh, some very poor shots I took of myself uh, and posted on Twitter. I thought that the 44 was fine, and I was convinced when I left the store that whenever I go and actually buy one, I'll get a 44. And then ever since I left the store, I've been wondering, should I really be getting the 40? And at first, I was like, man, if I'm in the 40, then Erin, if whenever it is she gets around to upgrading, which will probably not be this year, that's going to look ridiculous on her, isn't it? And then... I thought to myself, well, you know, our wrists probably aren't that different, truth be told. And and I, then I got angry about, you know, losing out on my watch bands, of which I have like two official sport bands, two hilariously crummy Amazon knockoffs that I use every great once in a while, <laughs> and a reasonably crummy Amazon knockoff Milanese loop. And guess what? You can buy more knockoffs. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. And then it occurred to me, but it would be kind of nice to be able to share bands with Aaron, actually, yeah. which that never had crossed my mind until after we recorded last, that if we're both on the 38-40 size, then we can swap bands back and forth, and that would actually be kind of nice. So I still am not sure which one I should get, and truthfully, I should probably wait to buy one until Aaron's with me so I can try them both on, and in between her rolling her eyes, she can <laughs> suggest a size for me. Um, but... I don't know what I would do because I was so convinced that 44 was just fine. And then ever since I've left, I've somewhat convinced myself that maybe 42 is the right. I mean, I'm sorry, 40 is the right answer. So in the past show, we we're all like, oh, hemming and hawing and printing out. Well, we want to print out pieces of paper to check the watch sizes. Just go to the store. Just go to the store. We all just went to the store. Now we still can't decide. It was just yeah. pathetic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I decided and I'm very happy with my decision. Marco is decisive. He's more, much more experienced watch decider than we are <laughs> yeah no and i have a feeling you know we know that a lot of our audience is men and a lot of men are especially a lot of men who listen to this show 
are like us not that great or confident at our fashion skills and so a lot of men might not feel confident picking the smaller one even if that's the one that actually seems to fit them better because you might think will you know is this a more feminine model and i'm here to tell you it's not like the apple has done a very good job of minimizing the gender styling differences among the apple watch models like in the rest of the watch world they don't do a very good job of this <laughs> but apple does a very good job at not overly gender targeting most of the apple watch models or bands or sizes or anything else some are a little bit more feminine or a little bit more masculine but very few it's it's almost all unisex and so don't worry about that you know there's no reason you should be worried about it to begin with just for lots of reasons but like no, none of these will nobody's gonna look and say like oh you're wearing a woman's watch like what year is this like <laughs> you know like we're a little bit better about things as a society yeah i I just want to emphasize that that emphasize that point that you just touched on which is a thought technology that people may not have in their arsenal but they should add uh (laughs) something looking feminine if you think about that being derogatory doesn't make any sense because what are you saying that anything uh, people people so uh, you know don't don't think give that a second thought but like well of course i don't want to wear something that looks feminine why not well because girls are bad like think it through like it's not (laughs) actually it's it's horrible that 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 so many people just accept that as a thing that is it is not actually bad. I'm not telling you what to watch to buy. Buy whatever you want. You know, pick the one that you think looks nicest on you. But I would invite you to noodle around with the idea in your head that something looking feminine on a man is bad, and follow that through to its conclusion about like why that is. Again, not saying that you anyway. It just it's worth it's worth thinking about that. Put that put that aside and maybe like twiddle it with your brain finger every once in a while and think about it (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly i mean and so yeah don't like uh, there are certain bands that are somewhat gender targeted almost all of them aren't almost everything is neutral like my you know my steel one comes with the white sport band this is about as neutral as you can get like it's right i'd say it's right down the middle like this is not gender specific or gender targeted or anything like that and, you know, you can wear wear whatever size fits you, and that will look better than wearing the wrong size for you, no matter what those sizes are. I feel like the one does look a little California, though. It's kind of like no white after Labor Day kind of. Like, <laughs> it reminds me of Johnny Ive and his white slacks. And it's it's like a, it's a it's like you want to go yachting. Right. I, don't know I, I, I was kind of worried about that because like I I've never I've never owned a white band before um and i was like i've tried them on in a store a couple times and always got the feeling like oh that's kind of nice for somebody cooler than me maybe but not actually for me um but this one you know this is the only band that that this configuration came on and because i am because i changed size classes with my watch this is now the only band i have that fits my watch uh and i i thought about buying a new one but like i'm actually i'm actually pretty happy with this it actually like I think I will be this cool person, this cool California summer person, you know, for for the time being, because I, I I think it looks really good. It's it's nice and neutral. It's not too casual and not too dressy. Like it's right down the middle. So I'm actually I'm pretty happy with just the white sport band, to be honest. Anyway, so I do have some criticisms and opinions about the watch faces. Um, some of this is actually covered pretty well on Upgrade uh, this past week. So listen to that as well. You should be listening to that anyway, because it's a great show. But sorry for the overlap here. Um, so everyone is really excited about these new infograph faces. These are the ones that this was, you know, the analog one was the one that, that was in the press shot that was leaked a couple weeks ago. They have these, these new fancy, colorful, curved complications. I, hmm, I have tried over the last few days since having this watch, I have tried to 
configure the infograph analog face in a way that I like. And it is, you know, the, the one with the, with the regular hands in the middle, not like the big you know, modular one. I cannot come up with a configuration of that face that is good that also allows me to tell the time quickly. Like, yeah, I fought with that face, too. It, yeah, like, it, it is really... And to Apple's credit, they've given us all sorts of new garbage things to fill the complications with. Like, you can put the moon and the Earth mm-hmm. in some of the round faces. <laughs> what, what does the Earth one do? The Earth just shows, like, the shadow on the Earth, I guess? Like, yeah, it might be, like, a time of day kind of thing, but uh, I don't know. Like, it's it's not great. <laughs> can I put the Overcast logo in some places? Maybe? Yes. Well, actually, <laughs> with yeah, with the build that should be coming out maybe tomorrow, yes. Uh, but... <laughs> uh, it's really it's really hard to make that face both useful and not super busy and there are just so many things i would do differently if i could design my own faces (laughs) i wish i could design my own faces so badly oh i would do so many things differently um by the way quick props to carrot weather i have never been a carrot weather user i prefer weatherline for my weather needs just I, i just like the way the interface works um but I, I started using Carrot Weather today because they offer such amazing customization of the watch complications. And they can do things, you know, not only do they add things like, um, there are things like humidity that you can't get with Apple's watch thing. Because all the different, they, they added like air quality index, but they didn't add humidity. Like it's like, that's because what? humidity doesn't exist in California. But it like I've been to San Francisco a lot. Like they seem to have humidity there. Like I don't, it, that isn't that far from San Jose. They, I think people have humidity been there a lot. Humidity is a state of mind, Marco. Like humidity I, is just a state of anyway, mind. Anyway, so carrot weather is really great, not only for certain things like humidity that you just can't get with Apple's complication, but also they have a lot of customization options where you can say like, all right, when you have a, when the carrot weather complication is in this face in this shape type display this inf- this piece of information when it's on this shape on this face type display this other information so you can actually have carrot weather in multiple complications on the same face displaying different things and you can combine two values so like if you want to know like like uh, one of mine one of my favorite faces uh, actually my favorite general purpose face is utility um and it has two small complications and one big text one at the bottom. Well, if you want to know like a fourth piece of information, Carrot Weather has a thing where you can like, I want to know the temperature and the weather and also sunset time. And you can do that. It's one of the options to have weather and sunset time in, in that one big bottom complication on utility and on other faces like that. So like, it's really, really great. I'm a huge fan of Carrot Weather for the for the customizability of watch complications. It's fantastic. That does require, I believe, a four dollar a year subscription. But for God's sake, it's four dollars a year. Uh, so <laughs> don't worry about it. Um, anyway, so getting back to Infograph, I cannot come up with a way that to make that face legible to tell time quickly. It can do lots of other stuff. You can fit lots of other information in those complications, but the it ends up being so busy even if you keep the center dial empty or if you like just put the date blob up there and you don't fill the other three uh things that are in like the sub dial positions even if you don't fill those the design of the hands and hour indices is so minimal and you have to you have to look at it kind of for a little while to tell like what hour you're on and so it's it's really not a good face design it, it, it shows well at marketing but if one of the things you want for your watch to do is tell the time quickly i don't think infograph is a good way to do that the infograph modular one the one that's like a digital face that is just basically a, a colorful version of the old modular face that i can see the argument for way better because that is 
you know, it, it's it's an all digital face. There's no giant dial in the middle. Uh, it's it's th- that I can see is substantially more pragmatic and a cleaner design. But I like I like analog time. You know, it's it isn't just because of you know having old watches. I also just like telling time that way you know you see like a proportional view of what's going on and it's kind of how my brain works so i want a good analog face um, and infograph doesn't do that for me my favorite face to look cool even though it isn't analog is still solar this is the one that has that big sun curve in the middle and it goes like for through the sun phase i love solar I'm a little worried for its future because it's no longer in the default set of faces. Like you have to go to that ad menu on the far right that no one knows is there. And it's with all like the other forgotten faces of your, like the, like all the different ones. Uh, but it is, it still is really good. A lot of people ha- haven't known that the solar face, which used to have zero complications and maybe you all stopped using it. Like in watch OS three, I think in watch OS four, it was solar got complications there it has two complication slots uh so you know you can put like the day and date in one you can put weather in the other or something like that um the only thing is it doesn't appear to use the complications or to offer them on series zero and maybe series one and two so you might need a more modern watch but anyway solar has complications now if you haven't looked at it for a while give it another shot um and if one of the things you want to know is sunrise or sunset time that's built into the face so you actually need fewer complications on it so it's actually a pretty high utility face if you want digital time Um, but ultimately my favorite watch face for general use is utility you know if you're offering a a range of watches like you would if you're designing faces for the most popular smartwatch in the world i think it's not an uncommon desire to tell time with analog hands on a round dial that has the 1 through 12 hour numerals around it. Only two Apple Watch faces of like the 20 or something that they have now can actually show the 1 through 12 hour numerals around the dial, around an analog dial. The other one is the Mickey Mouse face. So I think I might even rule that one out <laughs> for lots of reasons. Only utility can display the 1 through 12 numbers. The Explorer face can do 12, 3, and 9, but that's it. And the Explorer face is kind of ugly in lots of other ways, although it still remains the only one that can tell you your cellular reception and whether you're connected to cellular, which is bizarre to me that that isn't a complication. Uh, But only one face has that for some reason. Uh, But Utility is the only face that gives you 1 through 12 without Mickey Mouse dancing in the middle. All right, so it it is still, I I think, the best all-around general-purpose Apple Watch face if you want analog time. And it looks way better on the series four than it did before because on the previous ones because the screen bezels were so much larger it looked like you had a tiny watch dial in the middle of a giant watch body and that is not a good look the new one because the screen goes more edge to edge it the 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 size of the like you know the round part of the dial in the middle of it the size is much better proportioned to the overall watch body it like you get like in mine you know i have about the same size watch dial as my old 42 watch in this new 40 size body so it just it looks like it looks like a much nicer proportion watch it no longer looks like a tiny dial in the middle of a giant expanse of black so it's way nicer than that i will say though i have the exact same complaint that john gruber cited in his review i really don't like how they now curve the complications around all these old faces. 
Oh, by the way, HTML Arson in the chat is saying, I'm not counting the chronograph face. Could be wrong. I'll, I'll double check after the show. Um, the curved complications around these old faces, it just looks terrible. Like, it, it looks like a mistake. It looks like something you would try in the design labs once. You'd look at it and be like, nope, that doesn't work. And you'd cancel it and you'd go back to something else. I wish they would just put those back in the corners the way they were and make the text straight again. And this applies to almost all of the old faces that, that have this style of complication, which used to be the only style where you have like generally a monochrome or almost monochrome, like short line of text or a corner like round thing or like a corner, you know, three characters of text kind of thing. I really, really don't like that. And it, it greatly messes with my utility face. I, I really don't like that. So I really hope Apple changes that or offers an option or reverts it or something. I, I, I'm not holding my breath on that because I bet they won't, but it really does make the old faces, which otherwise look very good on the new models because the new margins, but that those curve complications make the old faces pretty rough. I only have an old and busted Series 3 watch, but uh, I agree with you about the utility watch face. I actually use it with no numerals, so your your quest for numerals uh, I, I can't agree with, but I almost always use the utility watch face. When I was still uh, in a regular jobby job, I did like the Siri watch face for when it was, it was an easy way to scroll through upcoming meetings and stuff like that. But now that I never have meetings, I, uh, I've been on utility pretty much nonstop uh, for the last couple of months, and I, and I love it. All right, real-time follow-up. I was totally wrong. Chronograph is another face that has the 1 through 12 digits. So my mistake, there's actually three. And if you rule out Mickey Mouse because it's ridiculous, two. Although Chronograph has the same problem of of utility in that it uh, has those rounded text complications now in the corners. And that just is not, it's not a good look. All right, I just tweeted to the ATPFM account the picture because that was the easiest way to get it off my phone quickly. So this is your preferred non-solar setup. Yeah. Solar doesn't look very good at night. <laughs> so <laughs> I've switched to this for the podcast. Mm, how about that? <laughs> so the bottom is the carrot weather combined weather conditions and sunrise sunset complication, which is, I think, a very <laughs> nice. Only, only a watch nerd would put sunrise sunset on his watch. No, I, so here's why I like, you know, Max Tim can make fun of me about this too. I like having the sunset, sunrise I don't care about, sunset I like having because I like to do dog walks in that range of the evening, but I, I want to know how much light I have left because that way, like, as I'm working, trying to get, like, trying to finish whatever I'm doing, like, programming at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, I want to know, like, how much daylight do I have left to do a dog walk? And then when I have too little daylight left, I leave for the dog walk. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow I managed to do that without knowing when sunset is. It never occurred to me to look up sunset. I just look out the window and I could tell how much light is left. Yeah, but it's nice to know, like, like you start developing a sense for, like, you know, how dim is it versus, like, do I have, like, 40 more minutes of reasonable sunset or do I have 20 more minutes? of Like, it's nice to have. Here's the thing. Like, I, I messed with all of the new watch faces on my wife's watch and in the store to try to get them to some state where i felt like it was a compromise that i would want on my watch and i I couldn't i couldn't figure anything i mean it was only like you know five ten minutes couldn't figure it out i had lots of arrangements that looked really good like if you just wanted to take a picture of them they looked cool but i'm not sure if i if i if i could read the time off of them because some of them were extremely busy and and b if i would want to i would want that to be my watch race i use utility on my watch too but of course now 
like Marco said, it looks like this tiny little circle in this vast field of blackness because, you know, the new watches, they do that screen thing where your old one looks really small and cruddy and everything like that. Um, but yeah, the, especially the curve things around the corner, I'm not sure I got to like, I think, I think their default face they use in the ads looks really cool, but I just think it's like total visual noise. If I was to glance at my watch and try to figure anything out from it. Yeah. Another problem I had, so you're talking about infograph. Another problem I had with the infograph face is when you're configuring it, what you ideally want is some kind of like visual balance or symmetry between the corner complications that are super like bright and have maybe a big colorful bar and the ones that don't. And I, there just wasn't enough stuff that I wanted that, that had like the nice color bar to actually fill it nicely. There was about, like, I could do it poorly uh or like put stuff on there i didn't really care about but i i couldn't really do anything nice like i don't know i just i couldn't come up with any with with a configuration of infograph that looked good and was functional enough for me to actually tell the time oh i was surprised you couldn't get rid of like i was cycling through the complications and the big three circles in the middle i'm surprised you couldn't set them to none like as far as i could tell there was no none choice you totally can the circles in the middle? Yeah, you can you can set all of them to none. You can even you can even blank out the date on top. I was cycling through them to try to get like Earth, Moon, workout timer. It's it's weird because like <laughs> the, the, whatever the scroll direction on the crown is for those, I, I kept doing the wrong one. <laughs> like just intuitively, I just kept getting it wrong. But before the A's is blank. Hmm. Well, maybe I just missed it. I'll check again. Yeah. Anyway, it's you know I I continue to be. S- fairly disappointed by the selection of apple watch faces i just i wish so badly that there were either either that apple would make more that i like as much as solar and utility or ideally that they would just open this up to third-party developers and and i know that's a very that's that's an unlikely wish at this point I, I i think they've they've made themselves clear by their inaction on this front this is probably intentional. It's this is probably like a decision. They don't want people doing this. Not that they just haven't gotten to the API for it yet. Uh, so it does seem intentional. But boy, I wish they would change their mind on that because I would love to design a face. I would love to see what other people design. I would love to address like the complaints that I have with things like how how you know it's not smart enough uh, with you know certain times of day or certain modes or having certain events be present when they shouldn't be or things like. I would love my, a chance to design that or to see what other people would do to solve that problem. I would love the artistic freedom and and the the freedom of expression that to like have more watch faces than just the same three that everyone else is using. You know, the Apple Watch gives a ridiculous amount of customization potential in areas that don't matter. In basically in the straps. <laughs> like that's and that's fine. That's that's nice. It's better than nothing, but everyone still has the same three watch faces on because they're the only good ones. And that's not how the watch business works. You want it to be individual and you want to be able to update it every so often. And that's, you know, it's personal fashion and personal expression. And they they just have not budged. Like, you know, this utility face that is pretty much still the only reasonable face to use still looks almost exactly the same as it did when the first watch came out, when, when John bought his that was forever ago. <laughs> and so like I, like I feel like they they keep doing new cool things with like the bands, but what I really want is customization for in the software side. Like more of that please. Something that allows people ideally 
to design their own watch faces. We are sponsored this week by RX Bar, because it turns out real food ingredients actually taste really good. RX Bars are those wonderful little bars that you've probably seen by now in grocery stores where they just list the ingredients right on the front of the label. And it's something like, you know, some number of almonds and dates, and it says at the bottom, and no BS. And that's what RX Bars are. They want to build things the right way. RX Bar believes in transparency, and they let the core ingredients do all the talking with all them listed right on the front. They have the egg whites for protein, dates to bind, nuts for texture, and other delicious ingredients, things like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit, and spices like salt or cinnamon. RX Bars are all gluten-free, soy-free, and dairy-free. And there's an RX Bar flavor for you, whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors. All of them, of course, have no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. And these are great for a number of occasions. Breakfast on the go, a snack at the office, especially in the afternoon when you're getting hungry around like 3 p.m., uh, bringing on a plane for travel, they're great for that. You toss them in your backpack for a bike ride or a hike or have a snack after a workout. Egg whites are a great source of protein. It's because it's easy for your body to absorb. So they use egg whites as the protein source there. There's lots of different, there's 14 flavors so far. Mango, pineapple, chocolate, hazelnut, peanut butter, and berries. Those are all really good, by the way. Uh, chocolate, sea salt, there's, it's, berries, blueberries. Like, it's not even time to list them all. That, that's how many flavors there are. Whether you like you know peanut butter kind of flavors or fruit or whatever, there is something for you in the RX bar lineup. They also have RX nut butter now, which is kind of similar ingredients in these single-serve packets with delicious creamy nut butter, each one has nine grams of high-quality protein, and it's squeezable, it's spreadable, super super practical to take with you or whatever else. Check them out today, rxbar.com slash ATP. They're all pretty good, if I'm honest. <laughs> I strongly recommend them. So 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash ATP and use code ATP at checkout. Once again, rxbar.com slash ATP, code ATP for 25% off your first order. Thank you to RxBar for sponsoring our show. Uh, I need new toys. But you know what I did do? I installed Mojave on my uh, MacBook Adorable. Oh, yeah? Oh, we don't have time for that. We got to get to the book. Are we actually doing the book now? Did you read it? What if I didn't? Oh, come on. Come on. You got an extra week. You got an extension from the teacher, and you still didn't do it? I have things to do, John. What things are you doing? Actually, I read the book. I'm just messing with you. Okay, good. Well, let's talk about the book then. <laughs> All right. So, All right. We are t- <laughs> yeah. So, this is going to be spoiler filled, although I don't know if it's really spoilers since it's not a work of fiction. No spoilers. No spoilers for the past. Yeah. Spoiler the iPhone came out, <laughs> it had a keyboard. You know, I'm trying to treat the listeners with respect, gentlemen. I'm just trying to say, hey, if you haven't yet read Creative Selection, we're about to talk about it. And if, you, if you're not interested in that, that's why the Germans forced us to use chapters. So skip to the next chapter. That's all. That's all I'm saying. So creative selection. First of all, I totally butchered the author's name in the ad read a few weeks ago. He was very kind. He didn't actually tell me this. I learned it when he was on uh, Rene Ritchie's show, Vector, and he said his own name. And I was like, oh, my God. I butchered that. <laughs> I emailed him. He was very gracious. Yeah, but, I, uh, I emailed him and asked him how to pronounce that name for our show, so yeah, we wouldn't so mess it up. It's Ken Kashenda, and it's it's spelled, if you didn't know how anything was pronounced, you might say Kasienda, like I did, <laughs> uh, but that is not at all how it said. It's pronounced Kashenda, so sorry, Ken. Uh, yeah, so this is a book on Ken's time at Apple. He was an engineer who worked on seemingly a lot of different projects, um, but the, the ones he goes over in the book were the iPhone, the first iPhone autocorrect keyboard, uh, the iPad keyboard briefly is covered there, uh, Safari and, uh, what else? 
Oh, and I, I learned on Twitter the other day that he also wrote the code for the original Solar Watch Face, which I like so much. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Now, I I did not know what to think coming into this book. A lot of people had said, oh, it's really great. And I don't know, I did that really annoying thing that only annoying people do, apparently, where they're like, oh, everyone says it's so cool, it must not be cool. And uh, and I was not overly enthusiastic about reading it, and it was really good, and I'm really glad you made me read it, because I really enjoyed it. And I think perhaps the thing I enjoyed most about it was it, it was the best description I've read yet of what it's like to write software for a business. And when I say business, I mean a business with like many employees within it. So I'm not trying to poop on your parade there, Marco, but... <laughs> writing software for Tumblr is very different than writing software for Marco. And um, I, 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 I don't know if I have off the top of my head any specific passages which really exemplify this. I did highlight a few of these on my uh, Kindle, uh, a few passages, that is. But uh, the, the, the thing that struck me the most was how good a job it did of trying to explain what it's like to write software and how difficult it is to write good software quickly. And... And then my second favorite thing about it was learning about how different Apple's processes are than anything I have done. Well, maybe not anything, but almost all the time I spent working for bigger companies, our processes looked almost nothing like this. And that probably explains a few things. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, I I thought it was very good. Um, And obviously we we were... paid to talk about it a week or two back but i am telling you uh hand over heart it it is very good and i think it was only like 15 bucks on the kindle and and it is definitely worth 15 bucks and it took me something like three and a half four hours to read and i am not a particularly quick reader um so i definitely recommend it 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 is very good and i really enjoyed it yeah i i too i mean i said said this in the ad read but you know and and, you know he didn't pay me to say it was good you know you you can pay us to read your ad script and and to talk about your product in like objective terms or in in you know your marketing copy but you you know people can't pay us to say that we like something and you know that like if you if you hear me say that in an ad read i'm saying that because i genuinely did like it uh and and that's never guaranteed it's never part of our deal and I really did like this book. Like, I really liked it. I, I did the audiobook version, which is also interesting because he reads it. Like, Ken himself reads it, and he's a pretty good reader at it, too. So it, it was really fun. And um, the only thing is you miss out on the illustrations in that. Like, there's a whole bunch of illustrations that are in the book. So it's kind of nice to actually have access to both copies if you can. Uh, but it was a really good audiobook, too. And it was not too long. And, you know, I, I, got to re- I got to listen to it while testing Overcast, while walking my dog on the beach all summer. It was actually really nice. <laughs> but uh, anyway... It was it was so good because so often. I mean, first of all, like this is a book that has Steve Jobs in the subtitle, and if you look at books that name check Steve Jobs, and if you look at the quality they have had, it's pretty inconsistent, pretty spotty. Clearly, you know, there's a lot of like opportunistic, you know, business book types trying to cash in on the Steve Jobs name, and this I didn't get that feeling from this at all. Not at all. And, and there are certain things about it, like, and like there was a good review on it. Um, I think it was in the Relay FM B-Sides feed where John Voorhees and Stephen Hackett did a, did a review of this. And, and I share a lot of their, they had a few, a few minor complaints about it. It does format everything in kind of a business book type narrative, but that's easy to just kind of breeze through. And then you get the meat 
which is like the actual like engineering stories and stories about demoing and and so it tries to form these back into like these like you know seven or eight core lessons of like apple's process and i couldn't care less about that but it it, even if you don't want to hear that kind of stuff this book is still very enjoyable because it doesn't dwell too much on that and it just gets right back into the good stories and that's what i'm here i'm here for the engineering stories and we really don't hear a lot of modern apple engineering stories we we really don't and and the way ken has done it is is pretty i would say very respectful it it sounds like it's probably fairly accurate like it sounds very plausible to be very accurate and he he is he said a lot in this book but i don't think he like burns any bridges like i I would guess i don't know this for i don't know this for sure of course i don't really have any way to know but i would guess apple's not mad about this book you know like he i think he's very fair to the company but he doesn't he doesn't like candy coat everything he doesn't say everything's perfect but he's very fair to everyone And, and it seems it seems like it's probably a really accurate portrayal of this time and it doesn't go too deep into like you know steve stuff because like he he didn't see a lot of steve he was an engineer like he saw some of steve but not a lot so it doesn't go too far into that uh it's like you know a nice normal amount there's a lot in this about well not a lot but a moderate amount about scott forstall and i think it's really interesting you know we in in these you know parts everyone thinks of scott forstall as the guy who was fired over over either maps sucking and the apology letter he wouldn't sign or he was fired because johnny ive wanted to get rid of skeuomorphism and i don't think either of those even come close to the full story there nor do either of those i think pay the right amount of respect for scott's role in the company and what it was and what what was lost when he left and and i've heard from a lot of people over the years who who used to work with scott or worked under scott uh and I really think it w- it was a real shame that he was let go. And none of us know the whole story. And from the bits and pieces we've heard, it does sound like he was at least partly at fault. But I think I think we're going to look back on that on on Scott being fired as just a real shame. Whether whether Tim made the wrong call, whether his hand was forced, I don't know. We'll probably never know. But I think I think it was a bad outcome. Whatever the reason, the outcome of not having Scott there, I think really hurt and has been a strong influence over things happening or things getting worse in areas that we complain about in areas that really hurt us. Because what's, what's very clear is that Scott really was like a, like a vice Steve almost it's it's hard to word this in a way that doesn't sound like diminutive or anything weird but like scott really i think had a lot of steve sensibilities and was in a kind of vice steve like position in the company and so to lose him after also losing steve i think it really took a lot of the steve essence out of the company like if scott was still there and and still in you know powerful role as he was I think we'd have a lot more of those things that that we miss about Steve. We'd have a lot more of those still there. And that really sucks that we that we had to lose both of them. You know, it's it was bad enough we lost Steve. We didn't have a choice in that. But to lose Scott also, I feel like that really hurt the product. And it's not about felt and leather in the interface. It's not about that at all. That clear clearly the story is much deeper than that. 
And again, we, we probably don't even know it. And it does seem like to some degree, maybe Scott was, you know, being difficult. But it's hard, it's hard to not to look at this and to see, like, maybe Scott was mad that he was passed over for CEO. Maybe he was mad that under Tim he didn't have as much influence as he did under Steve. I don't know the reason. But clearly from this and from stories I've heard from people who worked with Scott, losing Scott Forstall was a huge blow to Apple. And I don't know if Tim really had any choice in the matter, but if he did, I think he made the wrong choice. And I think that will go down as a really bad choice historically. Yeah, I've heard a lot of the same about how working for for Forstall can certainly be difficult, but by and large was really, really, really good. And I agree with everything you said about how this paints Forstall in, in, in a light that was different to me anyway, and I'm glad for it. Also, I think to go back to what I had said about how I was kind of wishy-washy about starting to read this book, I think I'm still grumbly about uh, becoming Steve Jobs. This is not the Isaacson biography. It's one that came out a year or two later, and I couldn't even get through it. I did not like it very much, which is weird because I also didn't care for the Isaacson one, but uh, most people seem to like becoming Steve Jobs. I thought it was just a, a terrible slog and and i never finished it and so i was kind of half expecting this to be the same but it was not at all and yeah the businessy like here's the seven keys you need in order to be like apple like that i agree marco didn't really do anything for me but i really think that it is a darn shame that so much like folklore of modern apple seems to be just kind of disappearing into the wind and I don't know if Ken burned bridges to write this. Uh, typically, Apple does not like to air even clean laundry, let alone dirty laundry. <laughs> um, but I am genuinely, genuinely glad that this book and, and things like it exist because it's it's really it's going to be too bad if the design and creation of one of the most influential products of the last you know ten, twenty, fifty, hundred years if all of those stories just go away with the people that worked on it. And so I'm really, really glad for this book. And it, and it really talks about how interesting and difficult it is to design software. And I'm not saying that that's unique to software by any means, but it's the only thing I really know about. And, you know, if you look at the keyboard on the iPhone and as much as we all say, damn you autocorrect, the, the story of how the keyboard came to be and how it came to be what appears visually to be a very traditional QWERTY keyboard, but behind the scenes is working quite a bit differently. It's a fascinating story on iterating software design. And what seems so obvious at the end, a QWERTY keyboard with some autocorrection, with some very clever and interesting autocorrection, that seems so obvious at the end, but the meandering path they took to get there is fascinating and it shows why doing this sort of thing is so difficult. So, yeah, I really loved it. So I've, I've read a lot of Apple books, like even the ones that you think are boring. I, I've read those too. Like <laughs> I've been reading, I've been reading stuff about <laughs> Apple since I was a kid. Like the, the very first issue, issue number one of Macworld magazine, like it had a, the biggest story in it was about the team, the people that made the Macintosh. I think unimaginable today that there'd be a giant magazine spread on the, during the launch of an Apple product interviewing individual people who were on the team about what it was like to develop it. But back then, that's the thing that they did. And it was very glamorous. And of course, Steve Jobs was one of those people. He's on the cover of the magazine. Um, and since then, I've been reading every like every business book you can possibly, I don't want to call them business books. Some of them are, some of them aren't. But books about Apple, books about the people, the history of Apple, you know, 
the history of individual products and teams. I have the big giant Newton book with the typo on the spine. I've like, I've read all these things. Um, and Ken's book was pretty much unique in that, like there's, there's a curse that afflicts many of the books about Apple, which is that they tend to be written from a remove where they're talking about Apple and necessarily they are expected to analyze Apple and look at it and say, this is what Apple is like. And let me like tell you about it and draw conclusions. Like, and they've got the big picture. They're very often drawing Apple or Steve Jobs or a particular product in, in a larger context of the world of, you know, the, their, their companies that are peers, the products that are peers, how important was this product, the technological march of progress, like, they're burdened by that. Like they have to, that that's how wide their lens is. And they have to say things about uh, all of those issues that, yeah, there's a subjective aspect to it, but there's, there's also kind of an objective reality. Was this important or was it not important? Why did thing X happen? Why did thing Y happen? Like the, the big picture and draw conclusions. This is, this was good. And this was bad. This was a failure. This was a success, right? Ken's book doesn't have to do that because it is a story of one person's experience at apple and that person is not the ceo it's first person he's writing about his own experiences it is not let me tell you about other people who worked at apple it's like me this is my story and his story even though it you know touches upon greatness many times and he worked on some very important significant products he's not the ceo he wasn't, you know, he's not even at Scott Forstall's letter, uh, level, right? He came in at a lower level and climbed up the ranks, but didn't even make it up to the point where he was like, you know, middle management. And he briefly touched in management. And it didn't, didn't appeal to him, right? So all this book has to do is say, this is what it's like to be one person who had this particular career at Apple, which is much less of a burden because there's no way you can read it and say, well, you're wrong about that. It's like, it's just he's telling his story uh and so that aspect and the fact that his story is not like because i read you know gil emilio's book he's also telling his story but his story is i'm the ceo of the company right and he's you know got the head the size of texas right anyway it's like it's different right and and, but even in that respect you can you can read gil's book and say well this is what gil thinks of himself and his job but you know you yourself are pulling back but there's in this story it's like so many other books about Apple try to sketch the outlines of like, you know, let me tell you about this person, this person, this event. And you can kind of like by coloring in certain areas, you can get the shape of Apple. But this is so precise and right down into the middle of the thing is like, I worked at Apple and this is what I did and this is what it was like. And that is so refreshing because it frees me from having to essentially like, you know, look at this this big important analysis and say, well, is that really true of the entire company or that particular vendor? Was that really a success or really a failure? Was that really better than that? Or is that why this happened? It's like, there's no arguing because it's one person telling their story. And for the most part, the story doesn't have like world shattering implications, right? The iPhone has world shattering implications, but the story of the development of the keyboard is the story of the, and it's not even the full story of the development of the entire keyboard because other people helped on that too. And he brings them into the story as well. Um, so, but I thought that was fascinating and, and it really helped me, you know, basically read it and enjoy it without 
constantly banging up against places where I think like the analysis is wrong or I've read contradictory things or whatever. Cause it, you know, cause it was so personal. Um, the business book aspects of it, uh, like given that it's a personal story, I can forgive a lot the, the business book aspects of it of like, let me have a theme and let me weave it throughout the book and let me explain it or whatever. I, I feel like is also fine because it's, yeah, man. Yeah, like there are lessons you do. You can't have this career at Apple and not come away with some lessons, right? Some things that you think that you learned working at Apple, and thinking about them enough to so you can distill them into a coherent way and make it a theme of your book and support that theme is a good thing to do. Instead of just entirely being like you know like a travel log or like a diary, dear diary. Here's what I did today. Here's what I did today. Like there is an <laughs> overall theme, and surely if you ended your career at Apple, you would think about that and you would. You know, so I I think that is a reasonable thing to do. The thing to avoid, and the thing this book mostly avoids, for the most part, is, and this happens in tons of other Apple books, which is, Apple did a thing, thing was successful, therefore everything Apple did that led to that is a thing that you should do to be successful too. That's what every business book says, right? Which is like the worst possible analysis. It's the same the whole thing that anyone who's successful, like, it, it could, <laughs> they think every, like, they can't distinguish, like, because Apple operates in this way and Apple was successful, you too should do these things because then you'll be successful. It's like, well, all we have is this is the way Apple operates and they were successful. But for all we know, Apple would have been 100 times more successful if they didn't operate that way. And, it, you know, the thing that made them successful was not this way of operating or this particular thing or the fact that they have, you know, pizza on Tuesdays. And if you have pizza on Tuesdays, you'll make an iPhone too. It's like, eh, you know, like, <laughs> well, it would help. it's very easy. It's very easy when you're fantastically successful as, as a large endeavor to look at every single thing you do and say those are, or pick out the ones that you think were important. Like every morning I have a hard boiled egg, right? It's important to have breakfast. If you don't have breakfast, you're never going to make the iPhone. <laughs> well, you know, people think all sorts of weird stuff, right? So there's a, there's a little tiny bit of we were successful and this is how we operated. Therefore, this led to our success. Not as much as in most other books. And, and the thing is like, this book is much better about like, this aspect of a product i think you know was successful after struggles but it wouldn't matter if it was if this keyboard was put into a crap product it would have failed like as as a cog in the machine you don't get to decide that you're going to make a phone with or without a keyboard hardware keyboard you just get assigned the task of making the software keyboard and making it work but big picture wise if it was a terrible idea to make a phone with with a software keyboard no matter how good they made the keyboard it would have failed right and it could also be argued that if they made the keyboard terrible, that the iPhone would have succeeded anyway because they would have worked out the issues, right? Uh, you know, they, it brings up the Newton as handwriting, handwriting recognition syncing it. So I'm not saying like, oh, what you did doesn't matter. But all I'm saying is like, it's very difficult to draw conclusions in the big picture from like what you did um, and and saying that it directly led to your success. And And to that end, I think one of the things that was interesting about this book and definitely rang true to me knowing people who work at Apple is... And, you know, if I don't know how many how many people know in real life people who work at Apple these days, maybe, you know, people who work in Apple retail, because that's like a huge number of employees. But if you know anyone who works at Apple, or if you read books about Apple and stories about them, you will probably be surprised, especially if you're especially if you're a person who works in a big company to learn exactly how few people Apple employs to work on particular things. How many people were working on the keyboard for the original iPhone? What would become Apple's most important product? Was it a team of 100 people? It was not. It was like basically one person with some helpers. Right? It was not a lot of people. <laughs> How many people were on the Safari team for like the first year? 
three. Like it's, it's, <laughs> They have really small teams. And if you work at a big company where you work on a 10-person team that works on like one tiny corner of some sprawling enterprise application, and that 10-person team adds like one feature every month to that one tiny corner, and then Apple makes it puts a three-person team on for a couple of years and gets Safari, like it can be depressing. <laughs> it can be... <laughs> You know, you'd say, like, what are we doing wrong? The other part is it can be inspirational to say, like, and this is, goes to describing the system. Like, is the fact, like, the, the, you know, this book does a good job of explaining what it's like to be a developer at Apple. And it's, it, as Casey said, it's very different than a lot of, it's much more like a startup. Because in startups, they operate like this because they don't have a lot of people. And it's informal. And there's lots of personal opinions. And you don't have, you don't have the staff to do, like, this methodical system involving research and some sort of, you know, all the sort of business stuff like they're, they're not doing agile on this particular team in apple although maybe other teams were they're not like they're not using a methodology they're not using this elaborate planning and estimation system there's not a lot of management overhead it operates much more like a startup um and they get amazing things out of it right the book more or less says we work this way and this led to our success. And it does comparisons with Google, who there's some stories about some teams at Google working in a very different way and saying they weren't successful and we were. Therefore, this way to work is better. Uh, that way to work is definitely different. It has pros and cons, though. Like, if you have really good people, it's awesome. It's the best way to work. If you don't have really good people and you put two mediocre people on, you will never get Safari out of a two or three person team, right? Um and so, like, a lot of the, I've said this before, a lot of, like, the business methodologies and software methodologies is a way to get good products out of so-so employees, which is an important thing. It's not like, oh, it's insulting. You should feel bad that you're a so-so employee. Like, we're probably all so-so employees, right? Like, all in the, in the grand scheme of things, we're not. <laughs> none of us are, like, writing operating systems or web browsers by ourselves that are taking over the world for the most, except for maybe Marco. But, like, it, it's important to have those those methodologies in there. And that's why I think it's a dangerous lesson for big companies to say, we shouldn't have these big teams and these systems and all this infrastructure. We should just say, give two or three person teams and just let them go wild. And like, it's such a cultural change that you can't turn your big, your big uh, company into Apple. And it would be probably be dangerous to try and you probably don't have the right employees to do it anyway. Uh, but it is inspiring to see that system working at Apple. The, the darker aspect of it, which I think was highlighted in this thing and was emphasized as, as a benefit, which is like the, the demo culture where you iterate by making a thing and then demonstrating it. And, you know, I like, I like the idea of making demos for themselves among their little team and showing it to each other as a way to just like test their ideas and stuff like that. And basically all of them using their personal pains and tastes to herd a product towards something that's good, which relies on you having employees who have good taste, essentially. And who, ha who are smart and have, you know, opinions that will lead to good products. Um, the downsides of that is if you're if all of your teams are entirely made of three white dudes, you are going to be blind to certain aspects of products that make them good. Maybe you'll produce a health app with no ability to track menstruation for many years. Like all sorts of things will will uh, will will potentially be blind spots. But the upsides are also big, but one of the other downsides of, of the small demo culture is the idea of, and this is probably worse when Jobs was there and even Forstall, the idea of taking a bunch of people who worked really hard on something and thought about it a lot and iterated and talked to them each other and giving them 10 minutes in front of a God figure 
to which will issue some kind of snap judgment with incomplete information overriding the opinions and experience of the people below them and in some respects that's what you're paying them for you have a steve jobs or a scott forstall because in theory they have the best tastes and the best instinct for what makes a good product and someone has to decide and that's their job that's why they are the ceo or the vice president and you are not on the other hand they are very often the least informed on an issue and i wouldn't want a five-minute essentially performance to be an environment where an idea that really was the best idea gets shot down on a whim by somebody who doesn't know all the know all the factors now you can't have you can't have you know too many too many chiefs not of indians whatever like everyone can't be the boss like i understand the things but like a lot of the, a lot of the scenarios where he was describing those demos i was like oh boy this is not the way i would want like a really important decision to be made about a really important product <laughs> not that it needs to be a giant committee or whatever but i feel much more comfortable about a group of five or ten peers arguing amongst each other over the course of weeks and trying things out to come up with a solution i don't like seeing that being brought up and being given a thumbs up thumbs down by caesar up in, in the the upper levels of management now to the to the credit of the people involved in the story if if that person happens to be steve jobs guess what you're really lucky because he's really smart and has a great, great track record same thing with scott forstall and all the stories in the book are like cases where something was brought to the higher ups after being worked on for a long time and the higher ups not only made the right call but also added value and saying you know what you're doing okay but i have an idea that will make it even better and it actually was better because you guys down in the trenches you're maybe a little bit too close to it or even just like going ancillary for the ux people where the guy was like oh can't you just put a letter on each key right that was a weird way to say it but that was the right call um and that that i think is one of the the best aspects of apple culture is that like in a big company maybe uh, you know certainly as big as mine maybe also as big as casey's if someone from another department gave a cranky snarky opinion about like the keyboard that you were showing they'd be oh, like hell no they'd be like this is not even your department like it, it would be like it would be like if the you know if the market like the, essentially the marketing department has an opinion about what the keyboard should be it's like you're not even in the software group like shut up like they'd be they get dirty looks certainly their opinion wouldn't be taken seriously certainly it wouldn't affect the thing but but in this environment everyone is there to contribute we're all trying to work on the same i mean think of freaking phil schiller who came up with the, with the click wheel for the ipod he's in marketing he came up with the click wheel for the ipod a pretty big feature of the ipod the big wheel on the front of it the marketing guy came up with that right and who who came over gave him the log jam of all the developers like oh we got to have big hit areas so we'll have keys multiple keys on them for months and months they're banging their head against this and the ux guy's like can't you just make it like a single key on the keycap and then they went back and instead of like being annoyed or getting angry at each other, Ken went back and said, yeah, maybe I could do that. And just like the buttons will be bigger, but we'll still show the keycaps not to freak people. And that essentially was one of the biggest breakthroughs in the entire product. And it's to the credit of the engineers that they listened to that person. And it's to the credit of Apple that that person felt empowered to say that wasn't immediately shut down. There wasn't like interdepartmental fighting over it and everything like, you know, that was a beautiful example of the system working. Um, I'm sure we can all think of if you've ever worked for a startup, I'm sure you can all think of examples of exactly that same system not working and descending into chaos and just like blood being on the walls everywhere. And just, yeah, so it can definitely go horribly wrong. So I, I, I read the book with like fascination and joy at seeing like things fire in all cylinders and fear that people will read the book and think that they can recreate Apple in their own companies and some trepidation about whether this is actually a system that should ever be imitated or whether it's just like there are aspects of it that you should that you should take away from it as being good. 
on, but the bulk of the lesson I feel like you could take from this book is here is one person's story. Here's what it was like to be this person in this position at this time making this stuff. And I think that like that, that alone is enough. You shouldn't be reaching to draw anything grander from it than just sort of like taking, taking this person's experience that they shared with you and try not to go overboard with the uh, modeling your life after what you read about. It was funny, though, for me to hear, or I guess I should say read, uh, passages wherein Ken described like classic issues that I've had at places I've worked in the past. Um, I have a couple of quick highlights. Uh, this, is, Well, I would tell you a page number, but A, it's not showing on my Kindle right now, and B, it wouldn't matter anyway. <laughs> but uh, in, in a chapter somewhere in this book, he wrote, uh, you could have conflicting lines of authority and fail to ever reach universally recognized final decisions. Like when a lot of people all think that they're the most important person in the room, all saying, this is what you should do, bad things happen. And that is something I saw a lot um, where was another one? Oh, here we go. This one's a little bit longer, so bear with me. Detached high-level managers making all the key decisions is such a widespread affliction that it has its own internet meme, the Seagull Manager. It describes a top executive who is rarely around but flies in occasionally and unexpectedly from from who knows where, lands on your beach, squawks noisily, flaps its wings all over the place, launches itself back into the air, circles overhead, drops a big poop on everyone, and then flies away, leaving the rest of the team to clean up the mess, figure out what it all meant, and wonder what to do about the inevitable follow-up visit at my last job we called this the swoop and poop and it happened all the time and this is what you were describing earlier john like well see but steve jobs did that all the time too like that's the thing he would occasionally do the swoop and poop because it would be like he would come swooping in to a department that's working on a thing that he knows much less about than they do and say this looks dumb i don't think you should do that and then leave and that basically means don't do that particular thing or do that thing differently. And they would take serious. It's inevitable when you have a powerful person, especially a powerful, charismatic, famous person, they come in and they mention something offhand about how they think that screen should be simpler or there should only be one of those things or this whole application should be in one window. They come in, they say that one afternoon, they leave. You are left to say, guess what? We are rewriting our application and all be in one window. Why are we doing it? Because the seagull boss came by. Now, Again, if your sequel boss is Steve Jobs, you basically won the lottery because his track record is really, really good. If it is not Steve Jobs, the poop is less appealing to clean up, I guess. <laughs> Just, you have you have less you have less faith that what that the scrambling that you have to do will actually result in something better. I mean, like the I mean, I, I have I, I keep debating whether I think this is like an anti pattern or, or a good thing. Like in in a situation where you have a uh, an authority figure, especially a charismatic one that you actually admire and look up to, the employees are motivated to please the leader, right? They're they're mo- they you want to please you work at Apple during this time you want to please Steve Jobs like presumably you like him you think he's good you like his company you're working at it in the height of his you know his power and his influence you want to please him which sounds like a good motivation but on the other hand I would rather people be wanting to make good products than wanting to please their master. Right. And again, if your master is Steve Jobs, that they basically align, you will probably end up making good products products if you do what Steve Jobs wants or what Scott Forstall wants or what all these good people down the line do. But I don't want the motivation to be please the authority figure. Like that seems like a misaligned uh, motivation. And you, and you don't want to end up elevating them and just taking everything they say as the word of God because they're the important person. You've seen this in, in many companies where people who are not Steve Jobs nevertheless have tremendous authority and power. And so many things are done 
to make that person happy even just working to make your your direct supervisor happy so you'll get a promotion it's part like if you start playing the meta game and stop playing the game game that that is that is an affliction as well so like i don't know if there's any avoiding seagull management and sometimes like it's what you need i mean hell even bill gates did it when he's like let's turn this whole company around and get focused on the internet it, you know he came and laid a giant turret on microsoft but it was the right thing to do at the time like in some respects that's that's the role of the ceo that's the role of upper management is someone has to make that decision so you don't get into the situation I described before where there's no clear decision at all um you know big big companies are hard like again if you know people who work at apple you know apple has lots of the same big company bs too there's lots of variation within apple apple's not homogenous it never has been and probably never will be uh, but big picture wise, like this is not the book to describe, like how the five generals and Steve Jobs actually changed the company. Like there are a lot of other books to talk about that. This is just talking about someone who's a couple levels down from a general about one corner of the company, which I think is much more interesting. And there needs to be more books like this and fewer about the five generals. But when you get down into this level, I bet there are tons of people who can describe working at Apple during the exact same time period in a totally dysfunctional group that is not successful and that produces crap. That's just not this story. One more thing on the book. I just want to emphasize what Marco said. I love the illustrations. I didn't expect uh, there to yes, be any, agreed, any agreed. pictures. I, I, I think there's maybe two other books that I've ever read about Apple that have any kind of pictures. These were fun, kind of cartoony pictures, some of which depicted people that I know. <laughs> it was fun to see. Oh, look, at the cartoon. <laughs> right, is, it, was, it was a lot of fun. They, they were like, the whole book is very, you know, sort of, casual and interesting and clever and you know like i feel like ken's personality comes through in it yeah um, definitely i feel like they massaged his probably massaged his writing a little bit like i feel a little bit of the writing like has been polished up to the point where i feel like it's less of his personality coming through but there's a there's a certain uh there are a bunch of different sort of personalities that you'll you'll meet if you meet people who uh, have worked at apple during this time or work like there's, cer- there's a certain kind of personality i feel like that fits in well at apple both in the old apple and in the new apple and i'm, I'm sure it changes but like i, I you know I've, I've met some people from the original mac team i've met some people who are there around jobs is there i know some people who work there now and it changes and there are you know definitely differences or whatever but the sort of fun loving impish uh like not not like joking in a mean way but like joking in a good humored way uh dedicated sort of resilient people those i feel like the people who who end up being successful and enjoying their stay at apple if they if that's how they behave like a lot of the people who would be successful at at a more like dog eat dog corporate business would probably not be as happy or successful at apple um and so I, i feel like ken is definitely one of those sort of happy travelers that that i that i've met who have worked at apple or or still do who who thrive in that environment who do great work who enjoy it who are able who are able to do it without burning themselves out because the the pressures are tremendous there right so you have to have some kind of like not laid back but an ability to like not just like eat yourself alive with stress right To, to sustain yourself in that environment for any long period of time without just entirely burning out and going nuts um and and you know and all all the people you know, we t- listen to the, the debug podcast where uh, Guy English talks to a lot of people who are there around the same time. And I feel some of those people who are higher up in, in, in the, the org chart, the pressure was a little bit, you know, got to them a little bit more because it was just tremendously like the closer you get to Steve Jobs, the more it like erodes your soul. Right? <laughs> the pressure starts to erode you. 
Um, but Ken seemed to be in, in a sweet spot. He briefly was, it was in a management role that he thought he wanted and quickly bailed on that. And that was a fun chapter of the book, too, where it's like, I want to be the manager. I'm, why am I getting, not getting promoted? They promoted him. It's like, oh, God, I don't want to be a manager. <laughs> and quickly retreated to, to development, which is it's great that Apple allowed that to happen. Like, again, if, if you work for a company that's not as kind as the the circle of people that was around Ken when he worked there, you can imagine him, you know, burning out or bailing out of that company like it'd be like complaining about not getting a promotion you are a troublemaker or fine we'll give you this promotion grudgingly oh and now you don't want it well guess what we're going to slowly exit you from the company over the course of the next year and a half because you're just a problem child but they didn't it was a nurturing environment and they understood that people are human and it, if, if he wasn't there you wouldn't have had many great things that we take for granted about the iphones that just goes to show that being kind to people and working to find their place in the company instead of just saying you're not a perfect fit and you're annoying therefore let's let's ease you out of the company that's a bad strategy yeah so it was a good book i enjoyed it you should read it yeah agreed and it's yeah creative selection ken kashenda highly recommended thanks to our sponsors this week rx bar prime video channels and marine layer and to our former sponsor creative selection by ken kashenda <laughs> and we'll talk to you next week now the show is over they didn't even mean to begin Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental John didn't do any research Marco and Casey wouldn't let him Cause it was accidental, accidental. Oh, it was accidental. accidental And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter You can follow them C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss M-A-R-C-O A-R-M E-N-T Marco Arment S-I-R-A-C U-S-A Syracuse It's accidental we do a quickie after show to get an update on marco's ocean status which has been in these notes for several months oh now. yeah what the hell is that about so I, I will give the context the context is that marco uh a long time ago didn't like the beach he was not mm, a beach mm-hmm. person didn't like it i forget what his specific complaints were it could have been an anakin skywalker thing where he didn't like sam but whatever he didn't like the beach he, he married a woman from long island so inevitably he was fated to come around on this so since then he has started vacationing during the summer on the beach and now he likes the beach uh and the next step would be okay you you go to the beach every summer and you like it do you go swimming in the ocean which is part of the beach it's the non-land part uh, and his answer was no i think like this summer maybe last summer and i've always been waiting to see when he's going to take the next step and go from someone who didn't like the beach to someone who likes the beach to someone who likes the beach and goes there every summer to someone who likes the beach goes there every summer and goes in the water, which is a big feature of the beach. And so I just wanted to get an update. This summer, has Marco taken the next step in his beach life and gone into the ocean to go swimming? I mean, I'll go in like with my legs, but I, I haven't gone swimming in it really. Uh, I'm not a big swimmer. I really like I, I can barely swim. I, I've been meaning to work on that and like take like adult swim lessons, but I can I can barely function in the water. Uh, and so that's that's really the main story i i was never that into it as a kid you know haven't really revisited that as an adult yet um the reason why 
I like the beach so much has very little to do with being in the water. Like there's so much else about it that I love. And that's just one part of it. The main things I like about being there, like it's it's a whole town. It's a whole community. It's a whole different way of life out there. It's like, you know, on Fire Island, there's no cars. And so everything is like you're walking everywhere, you're biking everywhere. There, there aren't really streets. There's like these big wide sidewalks and everyone else is walking and biking. And it, it, it's like a nice safe place to let your kids and your dogs run around. And it's just really nice. Like it, a, a recipe for happiness on a vacation for me is a place that is still familiar enough. Like hopefully like they speak the same language as I, as I natively do. But that's a, that's a very different experience from my everyday life at home. So like if I go visit like another city, well, like, you know, cities don't do much for me most of the time. Cause like, they're all pretty similar. Like their difference between cities are, are not that big. Whereas like, you know, when, when I visit a place like this, it's totally different. The, like the entire way of life is totally different. And yet it's a really close drive to my house. Really? Like it's like, I can be there in two hours. If you include the boat ride, like I can be there in two hours. And so it's, you know, it's easy to get to, there's no, you don't, I don't have to fly to get there. Uh, they speak my language. They take my money. They even have Fios, (laughs) but it's a totally different experience. And it's an experience that I, and a way of life that I really, really enjoy. And so that's part of it. It's also just like environmental, like being, near the water is really nice even if you don't go in it that much you still get like that wonderful breeze all the time you get the the sea air you get the more temperate temperatures in the summertime which is you know like i hate air conditioning but i use air conditioning all the time at home because where i live the rest of the year doesn't get a lot of breeze it's there's almost no air movement here it's pretty much the only big downside of of the climate here there's not a lot of options for cooling off when it gets like really humid and hot outside because the air just kind of sits and we don't have too many fans so it just kind of just it just kind of sits at the beach it's cool enough and there's enough wind that i don't need air conditioning the vast majority of the time and to me like because air conditioning sucks like it's if you're sitting in air conditioning, which I am right now, actually, if you're sitting in air conditioning, it doesn't really matter what's going on outside. You're basically isolated from the entire world because the the rest of the world is kind of, you know, uncomfortable for you. But what that means, like, it's not a good solution. Like air conditioning doesn't work by filling the room with a 74 degree breeze. It works by blowing 40 degree air into a hot, sweaty room periodically and hoping that kind of gets around. And the result is... When you're in air conditioning, you're never acclimated to the outside temperature and the inside temperature for very long. And so you have these stupid transitions where like you like, you you know, you go to work in the summertime wearing like a light outfit. You get there, it's freezing. You want to put on like a sweater in July because that's the right temperature for air conditioning for it to work correctly and and be comfortable. And then you go back outside and you're plunged back into the heat again. Like that sucks. All those transitions suck. It's weird to have to put on a sweater in the summertime because your air conditioning is too cold. If you put it up higher, it doesn't work. Like air conditioning just sucks. Like there's a lot about it that sucks. I see why it's necessary in a lot of places. It's necessary in my home. But at the beach, it is mostly not. Most of the time, I don't need it there. And so it's just, it, it's a whole different environment uh, in addition to the whole different lifestyle of how you function in this town with no cars and everyone's you know, like reading, you know, riding bikes and walking everywhere. I love walking and it's flat. 
like I, I don't like walking uphill that much. It's mostly flat, so there's not a lot of walking uphill. Like, so it's a great place to do things I like, to feel the way I like to feel, in a really nice place. And part and it, it, part of that is that the ocean is right there. And so you know, I'm working on stuff. Like one of the reasons I didn't like the ocean before, or I didn't think I did, uh, was I don't like seafood. And I've been slowly learning to like seafood, basically, which is surprisingly possible. Like, I didn't think it would work. My strategy was basically every time I went to a restaurant, I would try some of whatever Tiff ordered because it's almost always seafood. This when, when I tried it when I was like 20, that never worked. I just hated everything. But my theory was kind of like a tolerance. Like, if I just try this like twice a week, I will probably eventually like some of it or at least be able to tolerate it. And... For, for years, I was so disappointed that I couldn't like seafood because I like fancy food. I like everything that is usually served with and on top of and around seafood. Just didn't like the fish or whatever. And now I'm doing that. I'm like, I'm eating some of these things. Not a lot yet, but I'm eating some of these things. and I'm okay with some of these things. And sometimes I even choose to order some of these things. So anyway, it's, it's this whole thing. But like, you know, broadening my horizon and everything and, and going into the water to a, a deeper level is next on that list. But there's so much about the beach that I, I just love about the town, about the environment, uh, that it, it isn't all about the water for me. Like the water is one part of many of this place I love so much. Well, I'm glad it's on your list because all those things you listed are all great, but I feel like going in the water is a very big part of the sensory experience of the beach basically because it's all around you like the the waves it's not just a still puddle of water like it is a full body all five senses big thing and it like like you know like like all the aspects of the experience you were describing like the more of your senses that you engage the more the more it will be a lasting and powerful memory especially smell the more it will be a place that you think about and come back to and going swimming especially in the ocean and having fun in the waves really powerfully engages every single one of your senses including taste because you will get the water in your mouth so smell taste touch like every, sight sound everything it's all uh, even just getting knocked down in the waves and getting pulled under and the fear associated with that joy happiness fear like every, it's just all in one right and it it can be daunting right so that's why it's a thing that you definitely ease into right uh, you know especially if you're doing an adult like you're easing into the seafood and all the other stuff but I think it's it is worth it is worth doing to like I I make it a point like because I, I go on beach I grew up on Long Island and I've been to the beach a bazillion times so it's not like an experience that I'm missing out on but like we go there every year for our beach vacation and I'm mostly just you know running around and wrangling kids and dealing with stuff like that but I make it a point every time we go to make sure I remember you should also do all the things you did yes even though you did them a hundred times during your youth like it's nothing new you're not broadening your horizons at all. Uh, and you're, it's not an experience that you haven't had, but keep doing it. Like make, make a point to do it. Make time. Like for me, basically the thing is put down the camera, like give it to somebody else and take a time to go swimming. Yes. And, and not just go swimming in the bay, go swimming in the ocean, go out past the waves, do all the things, go on, put your head under, go, you know, all, all the stuff that you've done, like go through the checklist. Cause I find that if I don't do that, I feel like I'm somehow missing an important aspect of of the vacation so i'm glad it's on your list um I, you know and take it easy with it and you know don't like go in when it's calm take swimming lessons if you need to do all the things uh but i think it will really add 
an important aspect even the parts of like getting out of the water feeling your skin tighten as the salt water like dries on it and having you know having it in your hair and just like the way it makes your body feel and smell for the rest of the day or going back to that like it's all it's the gift that keeps on giving the ocean is great everyone should go to the ocean